What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Rico's Watches podcast. I'm your host, Eric, and I'm joined today by a good friend of mine and a returned guest to the show, uh, my good friend Jose from Periscope. How's it going today, Jose? Well, good. Thank you. How are you? I'm great. Uh, I'm super excited to have you back on the show. Uh, your last uh, two episodes that we did regarding uh, the history of Panerai and then the modern kind of history of Panerai and what's going on with them uh, are still some of my most popular episodes that I've ever released. People absolutely That's love. Nice uh, to hear. Well, I mean, your 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 ability to tell stories and to really take a deep dive into the history of brands and um, the models in the brands and the significant parts of these brands, I think, is something that people really enjoy. They really enjoy listening to you tell a story. And you know, I was really thrilled when we had the opportunity to uh, set something up again. This time, we're going to be talking about a, a very cool brand that everyone's familiar with and some of the really cool pieces that they've made being the Rolex Seedweller. That's right. But uh, before we dive into all of that today, no pun intended, what uh, what do you got on the wrist today? So today, I got on my wrist my new favorite watch, and it is a Breitling Navitimer, 43 millimeters in classic Navitimer design. And uh, this is a watch I just got recently and I just love it. And the movement is just, you know, it's a chronometer uh, a rated movement and it's just so accurate. I mean, I don't, I don't go and, you know, count the seconds, but it's just, you know, it always shows the same time that I have on my iPhone since I, since I got it. And it's just fantastic watch. I love it. What a terrific, terrific piece. It's absolutely beautiful. It's great on your wrist. And it's like, you can tell it's very much that like classic original Navitimer design. Where did you pick that up? You were recently at a Breitling event, if I recall correctly. That's right. I was invited to a, a cosmonaut event in Zurich, uh, which took place in uh, June um, 24. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was about the 70th, uh, the 60th. 60th anniversary of, of the creation of the cosmonaut. The cosmonaut is basically the Navi timer for astronauts with a 24 hour uh, dial. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it was basically um, co-developed by Scott Carpenter, the, the astronaut. And the interesting thing, we are going to talk about the Sea Dweller. The interesting thing about Scott Carpenter is that uh, he was the astronaut who turned Aquanaut with Sea Lab. Mm. And uh, that's going to be a part of the of the story that I will tell later as well. So, and the interesting thing is that basically Scott Carpenter reached out to to Breitling because he wanted to have uh, the perfect watch for an astronaut, and it had to be uh, it had to have this twenty four hour uh, display because out there in space you don't know whether it's day or night. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so it's uh, you know it's 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 just a twelve hour display is just not relevant. So you need to know you know on a on a 12, 24 hour display what time it is. So it's uh, it's 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 really a, a basically a tool watch that was developed by an astronaut, and it's it's just so cool. And the story they told there at the at the event was fantastic. You had like um, you had a what was his name. Uh, Scott Kelly, the astronaut Scott Kelly mm -hmm. was there. Uh, Scott Carpenter's uh, sons were there. His daughter who wrote a book about the father. And uh, it was just an amazing event. And also meeting the Carpenters and, and talking to the sons who uh, know a little bit about 
uh, their father's uh, uh, dive watches and, you know, about sea lead and stuff like this. It was just an amazing, amazing event. And um, I don't know, you know, we, we talked, uh, the first time we talked, uh, I told you that the Navy Timer was basically my first really expensive mm -hmm. watch that I bought. And it's like, you know, going back back to the roots, to that time when uh, when I really saw the, the Navy Timer and thought it's just the most amazing watch I ever seen. Well, that and that in itself, I think, is awesome. Just getting back to that piece that kind of really started it all and got your enthusiasm going for timepieces and, and really being able to enjoy that. But I mean, the story alone uh, with this connection to the cosmonauts and whatnot, or the, the cosmonaut and then the connection to astronauts and the space program, it's it's fantastic. Why yes. was, I guess, why when um, he was interested in developing a watch was his choice Breitling to go to? Uh, the story goes that um, in the previous flight, uh, were um, uh, John Glenn, I think it was John Glenn, a good friend of Scott Carpenter. So John Glenn uh, uh, um, orbited the Earth. Mm -hmm. And uh, during that flight, Scott Carpenter went to Australia, mm. uh, you know, because because there's like blackouts when 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 the capsule goes around the, the, the planet, there's a there's a blackout at some point in the US. So he was basically in Australia to have uh, to keep contact with the capsule when he flies over Australia, right? And so when he was in Australia, he had this contact with this uh, uh, Australian Air Force guy, mm -hmm. and he saw a Breitling Navy timer on his wrist, and that's when he basically, you know, with the with the um, with the slide rule, with the circular slide rule, where you can do, you know, uh, very quickly calculations. I still don't know how it works. <laughs> you really need to go back in time and and uh, you know because before before you had calculators, engineers would have like the slide rulers and would calculate all kinds of th uh, things with with that. And so it's it's just something that has you know has has gone forgotten in the you know in the past. It's just mm -hmm. you know, nobody needs that anymore, so you don't know how to use it. But you know, the older guys, they know exactly how to use it. That's interesting. And so he thought that, you know, this device, the, the, uh, the circular slide rule, and um, would be perfect for an astronaut. And um, and he also thought that, you know, if, if it had a 24-hour display, it would just make it the, the perfect uh, um, watch for, for space. And, you know, the cosmonaut was the first Swiss wristwatch in space. So John Glenn, uh, I think what he took up there was um, was like a like a Hoyer mm. Hoyer stopwatch, mm -hmm. and uh, of course previously uh, with Yuri Gagarin, he he took a Sturmansky with him um, up to space, and I think before the Sturmansky, there there, there was uh, another Russian uh, Russian clock or or watch that was, I think, sent up there with um, with one of the dogs that they sent sent into space yeah mm. yeah that's so, that's always a cheery story when people start hearing about the dogs yeah yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yes. yeah but anyway so the the interesting thing is that you know the brightling was the the very first wristwatch made in switzerland that went into space mm -hmm. long before uh omega mm. That's so interesting. There's so, so much rich, rich history there. And I guess at the time, they were definitely sort of like the natural choice then for someone who was, you know, a pilot, Air Force experience, getting into something like space travel or getting into, you know, space, space exploration, like really Breitling was the natural choice uh, for a brand to go to then. Yeah, I think so. 
yeah mm. because it was a it was like a, you know a navigators a na- navigators and pilots watch that's awesome that's really really cool yeah that's that's terrific well you know congratulations on the new piece i think that's awesome Thank you very and, much. and i'm glad i'm glad to hear you're enjoying it now i want to see your wrist well and we had discussed it uh, a few a couple of weeks ago and we were planning this episode and you had mentioned you know I was, or i was i mentioned i was kind of flip-flopping back and forth because i felt so torn you know i obviously there's two pieces that i think are wildly appropriate to have in an episode with the the illustrious uh jose himself and uh I couldn't decide. So you suggested I double wrist it. So when Enrico's watch is first, I am I am double wristing. So I have yeah. on, on my right wrist, uh, which I think would only be appropriate, particularly after our initial couple couple episodes together. I have my Panerai Pam twenty five on a uh, sword straps. Uh, they call it, I think they just call it the Egypt. So it's the kind of like their version of the Egiziano strap that you know obviously the yes. the original uh, submersible is kind of derived from design wise. And um, I love it. I'm so happy I got this watch. I know after we were finished recording the uh, last of the episodes for, regarding Panerai, we I kind of asked you like what your thoughts were on on some of the best Panerais that were kind of out there. And the original Submersible was one that we both really agreed on that was sort of like Panerai's really like, you know, truly their original design as a modern company that they went out and really tried to do. And uh, right, yeah. it just... I love it. This watch is terrific. I picked up one in amazing condition at a great price from a fan of the show, actually, which is pretty cool. And okay. um, and then got this strap on it. And like, I don't know what it is about the strap, but like it just it matches the titanium and kind of the tone of the titanium so well. And it just it's a great color. And, and I love that. So very happy and, with my with and my it panorama. looks great on your wrist well thank you yeah congratulations I, thank you so much I'm, i was a little worried about the size but honestly it's grown on me so much and it and it, and it fits well I've, I've never worn a watch on my right wrist before so it feels kind of weird but i had to leave room on my left wrist for you know we're talking sea dwellers today and i i've never had the privilege of owning one but i do own <coughs> somewhat of a distant cousin of the sea dweller being the the tudor pelagos and uh, I just figured it would only be appropriate if I put this on today to discuss sea dwellers, which is which is why we're here. And that's and, great. And my two my two absolute just beautiful pieces from my collection that I love dearly. And whenever I don't have one on the wrist, I I, I feel bad for not wearing it, but I'm always happy with whatever I do have because between the two of these, you can't go wrong. So it's nice, it's, nice. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot I, of fun. I see. I see. Now you need to be careful that the the Panerix doesn't have you. The Panerai Matrix. Yes. No, I uh, I try and, uh, you know, I, I try to take a lot of the lessons I learned from our last episodes together to heart. And I keep it really, uh, I keep it really, uh, you know, I'm very choosy about what I get excited about from the brand. And, and I'm very, I've always been very picky when it comes to watches anyways. But I must say, like, mm. these were made from a different era, I think, than what we're seeing happen now. I saw some Absolutely. of your some of your recent yes. posts with you know some of the the bezels that are like coming right out of the factory and they're already half hanging off and some of the crazy <laughs> stuff that's going on. But we don't want to get into all that stuff again. If you want to hear more about that, go back and listen to my other episodes that I did with Jose. They're yes, they're that's right. they're packed full of all sorts of good little nuggets and stories and things like that. But uh, one one last thing regarding Panerai's before we we dive into our discussion for Sea Dwellers today. 
my understanding is on your recent trip that you went on, you uh, had the opportunity to pick up a couple of uh, very interesting and significant panoramas as well that you do happen to have with you as they are uh, on their way to, I guess, their final destination. But in the meantime, they're having a bit of a layover with you. Can you can you show them and yes. talk a little bit about the yes. watches that you have? Yes. Uh, before before I show them a, a little bit about the history of these watches, mm -hmm. so these watches were were uh, were uh, part of a private collection of five pieces, and uh, they belong to a um, to a very private guy who who picked them up directly from the Consobine base in the late nineteen eighties, mm. and uh, the watches were basically you know always always in his safe. And uh, I think there were like on, on two occasions uh, he showed these watches at some at some exhibition. Um, and I remember seeing uh, a very pixeled small picture of of of, of these watches. And uh, I of course I, I recorded them in my database, but there were just not enough details to to understand what kind of pieces they were. Mm -hmm. But uh, the interesting thing is that I have always been trying to you know to 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 reach this guy or to to you know to 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 find more information about this collection so uh last year he passed away and uh and the family um you know not understanding what 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 these watches were all about and why he had this passion for this for these watches of course uh uh tried you know uh contacted me to uh, to help them sell them mm. And um, I uh, I asked them to make pictures, proper pictures of all the watches, of all the details that they couldn't without opening them, and of course, and they did. And uh, I realized they were just fantastic, untouched pieces. They came out of the Consobine Frogman base in La Spezia in the late 1980s, and they remained untouched until until today, which mm -hmm. is like absolutely amazing. They are like time capsules. And um, the interesting thing is that all of them are uh, listed in an inventory list from the Consobin base from 1988. So all these num all these watches have numbers on the back, and all the numbers and and of course the dials are recorded in this uh, Consobin base from 19 uh, Consobin list from 1988, which is amazing. I mean, you cannot get a better provenance for uh, for vintage. Rolex Panerai watches because you you can be sure that there were no you know no dealers had their hands on these watches they just came out of there and they stayed with the collector until until last year so yeah that's Let's see. So, remarkable so the first <laughs> the first one is this uh this 6152-1 a modified uh Rolex case with um with the patented uh, uh Panerai um, uh, crown protecting device mm -hmm. and it has a Marina Militare dial which means it is a Luminor dial and this, these dials were uh, basically uh, uh, introduced in the mid-1960s mid and so this watch is just uh, is just an amazing in an amazing condition I mean the you know the, the wide the wide uh, 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 pencil hands are just amazing the patina is great uh, and the condition is just, you know, of course they have some scratches and were hit here and there, mm -hmm. but the condition is just amazing. And the straps, the straps are 
you know the original straps from the 1960s absolutely amazing straps. that's amazing um i had a few strap makers asking me to make like detailed pictures of yeah. of these straps because they are just you know beautiful straps so this is the this is the the this is the the simple one with the, the still with the rolex movement in it and then um this one is a, a slightly different one um it has a luminor panerai dial mm. and uh this one uh was modified even further with the angelus 240 movement which you can see by the small second hand at nine um, if you see this on vintage uh, panerai watches uh, you can be sure there's uh, Angelus movement in it. So that's where, where the small seconds at nine comes from. And um, yeah, this is also an absolutely amazing piece. I mean, in great condition, the strap is, is a little bit more used mm -hmm. than the other one, but just uh, fantastic pieces. And uh, yeah, I mean, pieces like this uh, need to go to a, to a proper home. And uh, I took them with me and uh, they will go soon to um, to Asian collectors who will hopefully look well after them. That's fantastic. I mean, those are some amazing pieces. And I can't imagine a better steward to take care of them uh, in, in the meantime, right? Someone who truly appreciates and knows what they are and 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 understands the significance of them. I think that that's, that's terrific. Yeah. The straps alone, I mean, being able to come across straps that are in such good shape is, is amazing in itself, but then to actually have the watches attached to them is, is a yeah, whole other absolutely. thing. Yeah, absolutely. So what and is You the... know what's also interesting? What's also interesting is that the straps have numbers. I don't know if you can see it here. Can I was good. It? That was exactly what I was going to ask is what, what is the deal with the numbers? Because obviously, like every, you know, Paneristi are familiar with like, the 70 this one has, straps a, has a number as well yeah what's 20 or what, what's 24, on 24. 24 this is a little bit more faded than the other one so what is the the meaning behind those do you know these are inventory uh numbers so you know it's just a, a simplification for the guy who worked who worked at the you know at the uh, uh what is the name you know who gave out these watches to the divers when they when they did exercises and stuff like this, so the the one in charge instead of having to go and and check the number in the bag, maybe he didn't see properly. <laughs> I don't know, but in, you know, to to simplify the whole process, they just they just wrote a number a number on the strap, and they had a list with the number there, and then they would say, okay, the number number uh, uh, one hundred seventy eight went to Luigi, and then. So they're Just, so they're naval inventory, not not Panerai inventory numbers. No, no. Okay. But also, you know, uh, uh, the, all these watches they have they have uh, military matriculation numbers on the back. So. The thing is, you know, the numbers are small, so I, I just, I just guess, you know, it was just too much work for them to go and check, and check the details like this. They just, you know, had them hanging somewhere, mm. and then they, they had the number in the front, so they would just, you know, it's just a simplification of of their work. Wow, that's so cool. I mean, what a what an amazing opportunity, and for someone like yourself who, who's dedicated so much time to writing about these pieces and researching these pieces, it's got to be amazing to have these you know on hand and when do you get the chance to have two of two of this caliber exactly in your hands right, right? I, I mean, mean it's it's, it's, a... it's a once in a lifetime opportunity to come across even one and just hold it let alone to have two in the same place as you for an extended Absolutely. period of time that's Absolutely. Ah, so cool so so, so yeah cool. so this was uh this was an amazing experience and uh 
And, uh, you know, it's, it's also great that I have these watches with me so that I can document them in all details. Mm -hmm. And um, they will probably, you know, if, if I ever publish a book that is actually in work, but, you know, because, because I want to have a definitive view on, on, on this whole Rolex uh, Panerai history. So that because there's always new information coming in, it's difficult to publish something. And the moment you publish it, is already outdated. So that's why I love actually, you know, uh, publishing stuff on my website because it's, yeah. you know, if, if, if you get new information, you can always update it to the, the latest, uh, you know. Well, I better make sure I get a signed copy of that book when it does come out. That's uh, You will get one for sure, of course. That's yeah. wonderful, wonderful. I look, I look forward to it. I'm really excited for that. But enough talk about Panerai, enough talk about uh, yes. Breitlings and, 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 you know, enough talk about what we've been up to because now it's time to talk about sea dwellers and, you know, people know you from your writings about Panerai, I think, but the people who really follow your stuff know that you're very passionate about sea dwellers, Rolex is in auction as well too, and kind of following those and sort of doing a lot of the, um, you know, fake busting as it were, when it comes to, uh, some of these these you know, amazing pieces that are being um, fabricated and, and faked for some of these auctions, some of the auction houses that are trying to pass off these fake watches as authentic, intentionally or unintentionally otherwise. So let's talk about Sea Dwellers. I guess, where yes, did... Let's talk about it. Where did your interest kind of start in Sea Dwellers? And I guess just like, you know, let's start at the beginning and just begin with the story of kind of why these watches matter and how they came to be. Yeah, so I think the Sea Dweller is just a very interesting watch because it's uh, it, it's basically a watch that was that was created out of a necessity. It's mm -hmm. a, it's really the ultimate uh, uh, tool watch, right? I mean, uh, it's even more tool watch than a than a submariner because because it it you know it's it's really made for a very specific purpose mm -hmm. um with especially the the later models that had the the, the valve mm -hmm. were made for for saturation diving you know to to prevent watches from getting destroyed during decompression um but we will go into uh, into detail of that uh later on i think you know coming coming from 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 the whole rolex panerai thing i think you know like for me is 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 basically it's it's you know because they were you know the the rolex panerai watches of course were made by rolex it's basically an evolution from there to go to the submariner and then to the sea dweller so it's it's it, it was a natural uh you know like a natural thing for me to to just uh you know once i had uh, you know found you know um or, or researched researched uh, Rolex Panerai to a certain degree where, where I could understand, you know, most of it. Uh, for me, it was just a natural thing to just go further to, uh, to the Rolex Submariner and then, and then to, the, to the Sea Dweller. But for me, the Sea Dweller was always more interesting than the Submariner because it's, uh, it's as said, it's just a, a watch that was made for a very specific purpose. Well, I find it so interesting as well, too, when you look at the Sea Dweller and the Submariner as, you know, the time these watches are being developed, it's really sort of the Wild West. Like we're really experiencing a bit of a uh, renaissance, as it were, in the watchmaking world of, of creating these watches as tools uh, that are, 
exploring a new frontier for for humanity right i mean this the whole thing with sea lab the whole thing with ocean exploration scuba you know diving in general this was all a new thing that kind of developed because of the war into the post-war era you know and and you know if we're talking about rolex and panerai i mean you look at the designs of their watches i mean it's it's sort of interesting to see how they are addressing i mean even just you know between these two it's two different brands addressing the same problem in different ways Right. And I find that's really interesting when you look at how the Submariner handled it versus some of these, you know, uh, Marina Militare pieces that were issued out and how they functioned as dive pieces. But I mean, back then, you know, if we're talking about more traditional dive watches, as it were, back then you have Bonpon, Zodiac and uh, Rolex that are, that are really kind of you know leading the way in the 1950s when this first developed, when they first yes. started to develop these pieces. Um, but then you really get to, as we reach sort of this golden era into the 1960s, you really see how these, these uh, initial approaches to, these, to solving this problem starts to really mature and kind of see things develop into things like the Sea Dweller. I mean, you also have brands, you know, in that era now, the technology is more well known. You know, you have tons of brands that are making dive watches by the mid 1960s and, and into the late 60s and early 70s. But you really have only a few that are really pushing the limits even further with concept designs, for example, like yeah. Rolex with the Sea Dweller, or I know we'll get into it a little bit, but at the same time, sort of uh, developing similar technology being Doxa, which was also prevalent, obviously, in Sea Lab and um, other brands as well, too, such as Zodiac, Certina, Eterna, other brands that were yes. all, you know, yes. very commonly used in that era. So. I guess, what was it about what, I guess, if you were to put it into your own words, what problem was Rolex trying to solve with the Sea Dweller? And why was there this impetus to develop the Sea Dweller? So basically, the the Rolex Submariner is, uh, you know, with the rotating bezel, um, is, a, is a watch that was developed for diving um, with compressed air, mm -hmm. mainly. So um, you know you 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 basically you you can you you can uh, you know just uh, record the elapsed time of your dive, but another important thing um, is is decompression. So when when divers uh, uh, you know finished their dive and and uh, went up to the surface, they had to decompress at certain depth to uh, you know to allow the body to to uh, you know to expel. You know, um, helium gas, nitrogen, right? Nitrogen that was, uh, you know, dissolved into yeah. the bloodstream and into the tissues, you know, to to avoid getting the bands, which is something mm -hmm. that it can be very painful and even uh, you know, cause death. So um, decompression was basically the most important thing, and that's why the first fifteen minutes uh, of of the rotating bezel from a certain point onwards on the Rolex Submariner has has every minute. Uh, counted so that you can really precisely, you know, uh, 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 stop uh, or, or, you know, measure your decompression stop. That's a, a very important thing. So the Submariner was made for, mainly made for diving with, with compressed air. But diving with compressed air has, um, has the problem that uh, everything below 50, 60 meters um, causes uh, nitrogen narcosis, which is uh, is nitrogen basically uh, causing you know causing like a, a, a having a narcotic effect on your brain. And what happened there is that a lot of divers 
uh, got like drunk underwater and they would just take out their mouthpiece and drown, um, you know, if, if, if you don't have it under control. So what happened is that, that a lot of divers you know, would try to go as deep as possible. Uh, also, uh, together with, uh, in, in, uh, you know, in the, in the team of uh, Jacques Cousteau, I think this happened like in the, in the late 1950s, I think. Uh, one of one of their their main divers, you know, perished uh, mm. at the depth of 120 meters because I think he took out his mouthpiece, you know, completely out of him, you know, completely out of his mind and drunk from from uh, nitrogen narcosis, and then he drowned. But he reached 120 meters. But you see there, that's that's a very dangerous depth. And if you are not, you know, if if you're not uh, an experienced diver. Everything below 50, 60 meters can be extremely dangerous, and you, you can basically die, right? So, so nitrogen narcosis was was a big problem, but it could be overcome with with helium by breathing helium uh, with small amount of oxygen. So, so you know, do, during during the saturation dives, they had like mixtures of ninety five percent helium and five percent oxygen. Um, but then there's another problem with the oxygen. So oxygen, for instance, the Italian uh, uh, Decimamas uh, gamma divers, they uh, they had this um, uh, rebreather, right? Oxygen rebreather. But oxygen uh, limits you to a depth of uh, around 12 meters because everything below 12 meters, uh, oxygen becomes toxic. So all you see all this uh, nitrogen and, and oxygen and, you know, everything is like, under pressure, it becomes mm -hmm. just, you know, dangerous for the body. And so early on, they already started realizing that with helium, you could actually overcome all this, especially nitrogen narcosis, because you have zero nitrogen narcosis with helium. And um, so, so the problem there is that the deeper you go, the longer you have to decompress, right? So if you, if you go, let's say, with helium to 120 meters, and you stay there for an hour, and then and then you come up again. You have to decompress for 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 a day or two days. I don't know the, mm. the, the 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 exact number, but that's that was the problem, to having to decompress for so long just for for working at the depth for one hour. You had to spend so many hours or even days decompressing, which was just not efficient. And so um, Dr. George Bond from, uh, from the U.S. Navy, um, he developed this idea or, or he came, you know, he uh, in, during his research, he found out that once the body is completely saturated with helium, you know, that it cannot take more helium in, um, it, uh, the body can stay at depth indefinitely. So you can, you can basically work work uh, underwater for for days for weeks or even months if if needs be right given that you have a habitat where you can stay under pressure breathing the same mixture but in a dry in a dry environment to uh, you know to um, relax and to sleep and uh, eat and do all the all the things right mm -hmm. um, so so he he realized that, that once the, the body is, is saturated with helium, you can stay down there for as long as, as you basically want, right? And uh, so you can, you, and, and, and when you come up, 
again, when you when you have to decompress, the decompression time, whether you stay one hour or you stay one day or you stay one month, the decompression time is always the same. It doesn't matter. So that that mm. then then they started to realize that diving could become much more efficient. You know, doing water work uh, work underwater be would become so much more efficient if they only can create a system where divers can stay underwater or under pressure for 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 many for many days, weeks, or months. All of a sudden, when you have divers staying down there for two weeks, having two days to decompress makes a lot more sense. Than, that's right. That's than, right. Than having yeah. them down there for an hour and then having to do this whole process every time. That's right. So this was this was uh, George uh, Dr. George Bond's idea mm -hmm. and uh, of course um, he uh, you know they realized that diving would become uh, you know would become would would just become completely different from what what they uh, were doing before right because if you can stay so long underwater you can do like real proper work down there mm -hmm. and then that also at depths that that makes you know that makes sense and uh, you know don't need to decompress all the time. Don't need to go to the surface. So it becomes something, something that you can really do proper work underwater. And so, uh, of course, he uh, asked the Navy to, uh, you know, to create a program. And uh, the Navy, the Navy were, was very careful with all this because they didn't want anyone to die, mm -hmm. you know, doing uh, doing this kind of experiment. So. Um, so they they gave green light for for Dr. George Bond for uh, Project Genesis, which was um, the first the first steps were animal animal tests to see how animals react to that, and then he received uh, authorization authorization to uh, to start human tests, and um, during these human tests, Bob Barth, who is actually the the father of the Rolex uh, helium release valve. Uh, Bob Barth was always a part of of um, of Dr. George Bond's team, and mm -hmm. uh, this is the reason for this is that they worked at the same place, and it, this was like a um, it's like a sub submarine rescue rescue tower in mm -hmm. uh, New England, and uh, so basically uh, Dr. George Bond was there as a as a physician, and uh, Bob Barth was there as a as a dive instructor, so what they did there is to um, to train uh, um, um, submarine personnel in uh, in escaping uh, a sunken submarine that is that sunk in in relatively shallow water. So there's like a tank, there's like a like a tank. I don't know how many feet, and and so they the 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 the, the crews they go into a pressure chamber down there at the, at the bottom. Mm -hmm. They are pressurized to the to the bottom pressure of the water tank, and then they they basically have to get out into the water, and uh, and uh, try to uh, reach the surface. And to do that, they need to be very careful because they have to basically uh, exhale all the air because otherwise the 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 lungs would would explode because you know um, uh, air at a certain depth. Has a has a very small volume, but the, the the moment it goes up, the volume increases, right? Mm -hmm. So if you if you if you uh, stop breathing, what happens is that your lungs will explode at some point. So the, mm -hmm. the so the, the the story there is that you have to basically exhale all the way until you reach the surface, and then they created like you know special 
special uh, equipment for uh, you know to to be able to to escape uh, submarines that were sunk even deeper. But um, you know, th there's there's limits to it anyway. So um, Bob Barth was uh, was an instructor there who was helping this uh, this submarine crews, uh, you know, teaching them how to escape uh, a sunken submarine. So that's where they met, and uh, and this is how uh, how they 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 became partners in this whole uh, uh, saturation diving uh, um, uh, uh, escapade. And so, at some point, when they when they realized that everything was safe for the for the humans, um, the the U.S. Navy green lighted uh, the first Sea Lab operation, which which was an underwater habitat. Uh, at the bottom of the sea, like in in fifty meters of depth uh, of Bermuda, in relatively uh, warm water, and um, yeah, so that's 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 basically the very first uh, uh, life experiment under under real life um, uh, conditions. So I've had you know people come on and talk a little <laughs> bit about like some of the the aquanauts that were in sea lab and some of the watches that were worn in sea lab and you know people can go check out my episodes with like the restorian and you know justin's been on a couple times to talk about that specifically but you know essentially like if you were to describe what sea lab looked like what was this underwater habitat like that people were were staying in how big of a of a structure are we talking about and you know what what is sort of day-to-day -day life inside of something like this and what is like what what is sea lab considered like is it is that what a bathyscaph is or like what is what it what is sea lab i guess if you were to describe it what it's not a submarine it's like a i don't even know what you call it it's an underwater habitat okay it's basically it's basically a decompression chamber that is uh located at the bottom of the sea mm -hmm. how and big has, how big how big is something like that uh, well sea lab sea lab one was uh, was basically built from two floats that the navy already had and i think what they did is they they basically cut them in half and then they they you know they they, they connected them um but it was it was relatively small mm -hmm. i mean sea lab one can be uh can be viewed in in panama city in florida at the man in the sea museum Mm. Uh, they basically lifted it out of the water, restored it, painted it, and uh, inside made it nicely inside so that you can get a, a glimpse of uh, what life could be inside such a small uh, underwater habitat. And uh, yeah, I mean it's 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 in Panama City, Florida, and it's uh, it's absolutely worth worth a visit, not only to see the sea lab but also the museum itself, where they mm -hmm. have a, a lot of uh, you know a lot of very interesting things exhibited. That's that's amazing, and it tells the whole story of the whole Sea Lab Genesis and Sea Lab program, which is like uh, fascinating, with uh, you know with uh, with original original items from uh, from that time and uh, original documents. They have uh, documents, uh, you know, framed, which is mm -hmm. also very interesting. You see there that that Sea Lab was actually working with uh, with the Jacques Cousteau team. Um, which is also a very interesting story because uh, jo uh, Dr. George Bond actually met uh, Jacques Cousteau at the Boston Sea Rovers, I think in the late 19, 1950s, where he basically um, uh, you know, presented his idea of saturation diving. And, and for Jacques Cousteau, this idea was amazing. And uh, Jacques Cousteau was actually the, the first to create an underwater habitat uh, 
before CLEP because they were moving faster because they didn't have this this thing that the U.S. Navy had that they have had to be you know very mm -hmm. careful that no one no one gets hurt. Right. Mm. So the, the the U.S. Navy was very careful with uh, with human experiments because you know they didn't want anyone to to be hurt and uh, you know uh, all and all the negative uh, backlash that would come with it. Um, so yeah. I guess in this, in we're talking about now the first C lab. You know, this has been established. They're, I guess, starting to assemble a team of aquanauts that they want to send down there. Um, you know, we're obviously uh, by setting up something like C lab the first time, they're already aware of some of the challenges by the time they're reaching human testing from unfortunately the animal tests. But the um, some of the chat, like the initial watches being worn in sea lab you know we're seeing submariners and things like that where do things like you know i guess what were the challenges from the first sea lab that required the development of the sea dweller what 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 came of sea lab that required the sea dweller to be developed well uh, just one more thing uh, to understand uh, underwater habitat so an underwater habitat is is basically a dry environment that mm -hmm. is under pressure mm -hmm. that is under pressure and the divers breathe the very same mixture that they breathe when they wear the you know the under you know like frogman gear mm -hmm. and, and breathe through their mouthpiece so they breathe the very same the same thing and they are at the same pressure inside the underwater habitat like they are outside of the of the habitat and okay. the habitat has an open hatch which is also a fascinating thing. So basically the, the aquanauts can go in and out of the habitat uh, just like that. They just go into the water and they swim out of the habitat. And it's very interesting because, because it's basically because it's under, the habitat is under pressure. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the sea level you know, in the hatch doesn't, yeah, doesn't come up. It just stays there. And mm -hmm. it's, it's actually just like a mirror and uh, what is also fascinating in pictures that I saw is that because there was light inside the habitat, uh, basically the fish, fishes were attracted by, uh, mm. by, uh, by the light. And you would see in the hatch so many fishes actually trying to get to the light. It's uh, absolutely fascinating pictures uh, from, from Sea Lab 1. But uh, anyway, so, so during Sea Lab 1, they, they wore um, Rolex Submariner 5512. Hey, the submariner is the the name is actually submariner, mm -hmm. and not submariner. I always um, say it wrongly. Actually, Bob Barth, when I went to see him in um, uh, Panama City in Florida, he explained it to me. It's it's not submariner. It's submariner because it's basically mm -hmm. like a crew member of a submarine, which would be a submariner, right? So I always. I always go back to the submariner, but it's actually submariner. And um, hmm. so they wore a su submariner 5512. And at the time, they had no knowledge that, uh, you know, anything could happen to the watches. And um, what, what is also interesting to note is that um, helium. Um, so, so I don't know if it's the right moment to talk about the, the valve already, but uh, I, I think it is. So basically, so basically, what what happens is because in the in this dry underwater uh, uh, habitats, they breathe the same mixture like they they would breathe underwater, right? So what happens there is that helium, because it's uh, it it consists of the, the helium is like uh, the the it has the smallest atoms of of anything uh, on the planet. So helium um, can penetrate. Um, uh, 
uh, a watch that is made for 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 taking pressure from the outside mm-hmm. uh, can penetrate a watch through the gaskets and even through if the exposure is long enough through the plexi crystal back then all these watches had plexi right. crystals right and so what 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 happens is that um, the longer you stay in 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 this you know you you expose a watch to this to this uh, breathing gas the 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 more the 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 gas will will enter the watch and uh, and just you know also saturate basically saturate the inside of the watch right it's not damaging at that time because it's just in the same pressure like it ha- is in the in the underwater habitat mm-hmm. But the problem is when you when you uh, decompress to surface pressure. Um, so basically, the helium takes a long time to enter the watch, mm-hmm. but decompression is faster than than helium can actually get out of the watch. So what happens is that the pressure inside of the watch during decompression is basically stays at the same level during all this time while the, the the pressure inside the decompression chamber is steadily decreased right so at some point a watch that has been made to take to resist pressure coming from the outside has all all of a sudden pressure from the inside right so what happens is because the crystal is not like fixed in place mm-hmm. or screwed in place but just you know you know like uh, uh um, um you know like uh compressed, Compre- in, compressed, compressed yeah. in and and if the pressure comes from outside it presses it presses the, the 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 crystal even even more into the case so all of a sudden you have the pressure from the inside and because the the crystal is not fixed what happens is at some point the crystal would just pop out right and just uh, you know uh, mm-hmm. uh, explode literally explode i mean you know what, what happened is that you know this this comes with a with a with a loud with a very loud pop and it hits uh, the walls of the of the decompression chamber and it could even hurt, hurt someone but as said this happens only uh during hundreds of hours of of exposure and this is also uh uh very detailedly uh described in the in the patent application that the uh, rolex pat, uh, filed in november 1967 uh, just just to explain, but at the time of C-Lab one, this this uh, phenomenon was not yet known, you know. Um, so they they used uh, regular fifty five twelves, and because they didn't stay for so long, I mean, I think they stayed for eleven days in total. Um, I don't think that during C-Lab one anything happened with the watches. Um, so that's why they kept using uh, uh, basically the same the same models also for C-Lab 2 in 1965. Uh, and it, uh, an interesting thing to to uh, to uh, comment here is that uh, Scott Carpenter was already uh, scheduled to take place to to be part of the of the Aquanaut team uh, in in C-Lab 1 but he had a motorbike accident uh, on on Bermuda and uh, he couldn't be, uh, you know, participate because of that. So he participated in in um, C Lab Two, where he was like the team leader uh, of Team One, but also of Team Two. He stayed uh, underwater in the underwater habitat for um, 
I think 28 days or 30 days in mm. total. So there you see how long you can stay, uh, you know, underwater while breathing this this uh, helium oxygen mixture without mm. any side effects. So then, how did the conversation start? I guess to start creating a, a new watch, a new, a newer, better suited version of the submariner or submariner to be used yeah. uh, in this setting. Like, I guess, like when and how did the conversation happen? That they're like, I, I understand that you know the crystals popping off and and yeah. the damage to these watches created the necessity for something new. But I guess, how did the idea and the concept of the sea dweller itself come to be? Yeah. So I believe that um, that the, the biggest issues with popping out crystals happened during C-Lab 2 because okay. each team stayed for uh, for at least two weeks uh, under pressure. And I think that's that's the right amount of, of time for helium basically to enter the watches and fully, you know, fully saturate the watches so that they would, you know, explode during the compression. I think I think that the, the, the phenomenon was probably mostly noted. <laughs> Uh, during the compression of uh, of CLEP two, and um, what happened what happened is that um, I think this information just just stayed stayed with them. I think the the Arconauts learned to deal with it by simply unscrewing the crown during decompression, so that you know the mm -hmm. helium can can just uh, leave the watch without any issues. Mm -hmm. uh, the 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 you know the the crown is basically like a like a natural helium release valve if you know how to operate it mm -hmm. uh, I, th I think that's how they dealt with it uh, uh, in the beginning but yeah I, I don't think they 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 saw this as a, as a big issue initially um, but then they started talking about uh, C-Lab 3 I think this was like in uh, 1966 around mid-1966 they started talking about uh, C-Lab 2 C-Lab 3 and C-Lab 3 was to be like a, like a, you know, more than double the depth of C-Lab 2. And, uh, you know, like they were planning to, to have the habitat at the depth of 400 feet and uh, have excursions of the Arconaut up to 600 or even more feet to explore, you know, like, like you know, just to, to test how, how divers can operate at, mm -hmm. at uh, such crazy depth, depth. And, um, so this was in, in, in mid-1966. And I think uh, motivated by, by this new uh, C-Lab uh, program that would just you know, blow, out, blow out everything that has been done before. Um, so, basically, so basically Rolex you know, uh, realized that they had to create uh, a, a watch, a new uh, submariner that was able to withstand greater depths than 660 feet. Because at 600 feet uh, that was planned for excursions of the Sea Lab 3 Aquinas, the, the 5512 was already at its limits. So they started you know, thinking about creating a new watch. And uh, the name Sea Dweller is actually originates from the Sea Lab guys that became uh, literally Sea Dwellers. Mm -hmm. They were dwelling in the sea for, for two or more weeks. And so it originates directly from the U.S. Navy Sealab program. Mm -hmm. And that's why Rolex basically used the name because it was a watch specifically made for, uh, for this type of diving, right? And, uh, but at the time, they didn't know yet that there, was a, that there were issues with, with helium 
or maybe they knew, but they didn't know how to deal with it, right? So what happens next is that um, Bob Barth meets this guy, T. Walker Lloyd, at, uh, at some uh, diving fair somewhere. Some people say in New York, some people say in Boston, so some people say in Chicago. So it's, it's, it's not very clear where, and Bob Barth didn't really remember anymore when I talked to him where, where he met this guy. So, but but the 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 this is this is uh, how it happened. Bob Barth met this guy, T. Walker Lloyd, and T. Walker Lloyd was a was was a diver himself, mostly diving on compressed air, mm. and he was preparing for this underwater excavation off the coast of uh, Turkey with a with some uh, some famous uh, uh, researcher, and they were trying to find, I think, some some boats or something, some wooden mm. boats there. And um, so Bob Barth and T. Walker Lloyd, they talk. And, uh, and then uh, Bob Barth tells him about this phenomenon that uh, watches explode during decompression because of helium entering the watches and that he already figured out what could be done to, uh, to prevent this from happening. You know, that they could actually install like a, like a small, like small one-way valve on the side of the case. And uh, and so T. Walker Lloyd uh, uh, is absolutely fascinated fascinated about this this story. And what he does is, uh, I think he was a he was a photographer, and he was a, or or he was a photographer, and but also a a, a writer for for the magazine Skin Diver. Mm. And um, so he had he had some connections. And what happens next is that. T. Walker Lloyd sees sees this as a chance for him to, you know, to, you know, to 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 make something, you know, to, to create something. And he contacts Rolex in Geneva and tells them about this phenomenon of uh, phenomenon of helium uh, destroying the watches and how it could be solved. Mm -hmm. And uh, what happens is that the guy at Rolex. Uh, you know, is is absolutely amazed by this information, and he reaches out to to this guy, and and offers him a, a job as an oceanic, oceanographic uh, consultant for Rolex. Mm. So, so this is this is the story of of uh, how how Rolex got the idea for the valve. Um, so, but... just just for a question about the valve, though, like really quickly, because I mean, <coughs> there must have been other instruments other things that were having issues with this pressure and this buildup over time as well too where they're not there must have been gauges and other sort of devices that were being used in the c lab that would have been experiencing the same level of um, saturation and then decompression issues right so were there other versions of decompression uh or, or helium escape valves that already existed perhaps that were larger on scale and this was sort of an attempt at um you know making this technology small enough to actually fit inside of a wristwatch or was this a completely new concept across the board no i think uh, valves were were a part of decompression chambers anyway i mean you you need you know everywhere where, where pressure is 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 somehow applied and you need to release pressure in some mm -hmm. way or another this uh, valve is is uh, is the the natural thing to do but in I this, think that's in this sort of iteration, though, in the yeah, way yeah, no, in the way no, that it opens no. and functions, this was really like Rolex was the first to come up with this sort of iteration, and obviously at this size as well too to put into a watch. 
Well, yes, yes, but we will talk about DOXA because there's a there's a little bit of a of a, a, a confusion about mm -hmm. who came up with the valve first, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, so the DOXA people say it was actually uh, uh, DOXA, and also, you know, one of the one of the guys who uh, who was directly involved with uh, with DOXA at the time, uh, he he recounted the story how uh, the, the the valve was actually co-developed between DOXA and uh, and um, and Rolex, although there is no uh, no evidence for that. But we will talk about that later. Sure. I think what what is important what what is important to know at this uh, point is is that Rolex basically um, received the 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 idea for the valve around October uh, 1967. Okay. But they had already in the second quarter of 1967 between uh, April, June, and July uh, in, in this in this time in this time frame they had already um, uh, produced around 40 sea dwellers uh, with a depth rating of uh, 500 meters with the famous uh, single red dial that mm -hmm. says sea dweller and then in red and then underneath it says Sub submariner you see i always have mm -hmm. to submariner submariner so submariner uh, uh, 500 meters uh, 1650 feet uh, so these were the very first sea dwellers made in the early nineteen in early nineteen sixty seven, and none of them had a valve because Rolex was not yet aware of of this whole issue with helium, right? Mm -hmm. And so these were the very first sea dwellers didn't have a valve, which is a which is very interesting because the valve has has become like the the signature feature mm -hmm. of the sea dweller nowadays right mm -hmm. so so what, what happened what happens next um no to coming back to your question um i don't think there were any issues with with uh, with uh, other instruments um at least not that i know of nobody has uh has said anything about that i think that the i think the instruments probably had uh, were not as were not as uh, precisely uh, uh, you know, uh, manufactured uh, as as watches for maybe so that you know inside pressure could be released mm -hmm. through through gaps or uh, I I don't know I'm I'm just you know I'm just guessing here but I I have not heard that there were any issues with uh, with instruments at the time hmm. and uh, the you know the gorges that were installed uh, inside the habitat they were always you know. They, they they were they didn't have to be uh, water resistant so mm -hmm. um, I think I think the you know the the, the tolerances there uh, you know helium could escape easily from from things like that but um, yeah I, I've never heard I've never heard of uh, of other instruments having having uh, issues issues with that or having a, a, a helium release valve also maybe because um, you know, saturation diving is a little bit like a moon landing operation. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's uh, you know, it's it's uh, you you have like a you have like a uh, like a commando post that supervises the whole uh, the whole uh, operation, and they know at any uh, any given time at what depth uh, divers are, and you know, like it's it's also what what Bob Barth told me about about watches in saturation diving is that they were they were just 
there to to basically tell you what time it is mm -hmm. um there was no there was no specific purpose of you know trying you know measuring decompression times and stuff like this i i asked him once hey what what's uh, how did you how did you uh, saturation divers use the rotating bezel and and he said oh uh, we we never actually used it uh, the only the only useful uh, you know, thing to to use it would be to to boil an egg. He told right. me yeah. <laughs> to record the time for boiling an egg. And he also told me another story where where he basically hit the watch, and then the the bezel fell off. Mm. And what he did is he glued it back on, so it didn't turn anymore. So there you see. I mean, for saturation divers, the the rotating bezel was not was not important. Mm. Um, yeah. So, so, so they came out with the the single red being this first iteration of the sea dweller that we that we kind of get to see without a helium escape valve, but it's the first kind of iteration. He said they created about forty of these watches. Yeah, that's so, right. So, what what happened to these forty watches? And I guess you know why. What happened? I guess that caused them to quickly develop the next generation of sea dwellers. So, in preparation for Sea Lab um, uh, three, that was scheduled actually for for late nineteen sixty seven. They created these watches in, in the second quarter of 1967 to be given to, to all the aquanauts that were around. 40 aquanauts were scheduled to uh, take uh, part in C-Lab 3. Mm -hmm. um, and so previously, they had already uh, given um, uh, 55, 12 submariners to, to the C-Lab 2 crew, um, uh, which is also interesting. If, if you look at the pictures from C-Lab 2, they, most of them except for the for the you know civilian civilian divers that were also part of the of of C lab 2 all the us navy guys they all were 5512s and um, all these watches had C lab C lab and then a number engraved on the on the case bed mm. so far three watches have surfaced i wrote an article about it uh, you can google uh, C lab C lab 2 submariners and then you will find the articles it's it's very interesting, and those watches were actually ordered by uh, Bob Bart. And uh, what is also interesting is uh, in in the article there's a there's a part of the interview that I uh, had with um, uh, with Bob Barth, and he recounts the story how he went to the Navy base in uh, in Panama City and asked for uh, Rolex submariners for for the whole for the whole crew. And then they said to him, "No, you cannot. You cannot buy a Rolex. You have to buy a two door." And uh, and then he said, "No, no, I, we 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 want a Rolex. We don't want a two door." And then he says something that is very interesting. He says, "I had Scott Carpenter. He stepped in and told them why we wanted a Rolex." And he never told me what the real reason was for uh, for why they wanted a Rolex. I asked him, and he said very quickly without even thinking. He said. Oh, I don't remember. And then you know he doesn't want to talk about this probably because there's there might be some you know some some direct connections between Rolex and and C Lab or or people at C Lab. Maybe Scott Carpenter. We know Scott Carpenter was a was a watch guy, right? Mm -hmm. He already contacted Breitling to make him this very specific uh, watch for for. Uh, for uh, astronauts, and uh, you know, it's uh, you know, it's it's not far reached to to think that uh, Scott Carpenter was uh, was in contact with Rolex at the time, and uh, 
and uh, you know there was some kind of a promotional thing going on between Rolex and 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 C Lab, and that's why all these guys were very prominently wearing uh, Submariners fifty five twelve. It's funny to hear how there's still some of that shenanigans going on back then, though. Hey, you go into an eighty, ask them to get a Rolex, and they say, "No, you got to buy a Tudor first. Yeah, <laughs> that's very interesting. And it's also it's also interesting. You you see there that um, you know all these watch brands were very interested in in basically equipping mm-hmm. equipping this uh, this uh, new this 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 cruise of uh, of new form of divers because it was uh, you know cutting edge. You well, know? you have you, you had so many brands that were releasing pieces that were you know maybe not directly tied to Sea Lab but tied to that kind of style of of uh, of diving, right? I mean, you had like the Super Sea Wolf come out, which was a seven hundred and fifty meter dive watch. You had the the Plo Prof, uh, being a huge one that was developed the Plonger Professionnel from Omega. Uh, yeah. which I think was I think at the time was was it 600 meters as well I believe or you're right meters, but yeah. didn't didn't have an escape valve though kind of solved that problem with having like a, a mono case if I recall and all kinds it of had a mono cat. case and uh and basically the crystal was clamped that yeah. was that was a, what I was telling you earlier the crystal was clamped between the case and the bezel so mm. that it couldn't just pop out mm-hmm. um you know, and and uh, I think the, the the watch had like um, special gaskets uh, that wouldn't uh, let in uh, helium, something like that. So basically, the 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 Omega Pro Prof, whether it's the the the, the six hundred or or the the one thousand, because um, if if you if you look at the timeline, basically the one thousand was developed before the six hundred. Uh, that's it- and you kept seeing these watches created from the era too that had like that like uh like a like a, a nut basically screwed in over the crystal that kind of held the crystal into place too. Yeah, like that's like, a, the Certina uh, DSPH five hundred. Exactly think right. Yeah. So I, I I think that's just an aesthetical thing. I don't think that that was done. I'm I'm not sure. So I so I thought so, and I thought this is really interesting. And I wish I had it here to kind of. I mean, I wouldn't be able to see it on on camera anyways. But so I like I recently I think I sent you a picture. Of, <coughs> uh, I had a uh, I picked up a, an original. Uh, sea wolf super sea wolf uh 775 atm so like their version of saturation diver it actually has two crystals which i found really okay. interesting so there's the crystal the main crystal that goes over uh the the main dial and then yeah. there's the second crystal that is attached to this nut that is screwed in to the actual face of the watch it doesn't have a helium escape valve but it has this two crystal system with this compression nut that's keeping everything into place so i'm not sure mm. like i mean you, you hear all these different ways in which these companies were trying to solve this problem and it's interesting to see they all took this approach where it was like you know rolex was literally just like yes yeah, let's put a hole in the case it's fine yeah. <laughs> let's, just, let's just put a hole for the gas to come out of and it makes it easy where you have these uh, companies making these really cumbersome pieces that are like very thick and large and heavy yeah. and with this all this really interesting technology but the answer to the problem is simply put a valve there it's easy put a hole in the case that can come out of the end yeah i mean you know the valve idea uh, saved rolex from from basically having to develop a completely new watch mm-hmm. for for saturation dive divers like like for instance uh, uh, omega was doing so it, it was basically they just kept the sub- submariner and just you know, as you said, they drilled a hole in, on the side and uh, and uh, you know installed this valve, which is which is a very smart idea. 
you know, there's people they say, you know, the more holes you have in a case, the the, the mm-hmm. worse for the watch because there it could be. Um, but but the way the valve was was basically constructed, um, uh, you know, it it was like a cone, you know, it was like a cone, and and basically outside pressure would press the cone against the the rubber gasket that was between the cone and 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 the uh, and the case. So you know, uh, there's no chance that water mm-hmm. that water could go in. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- th- I think Doxa had a, a slightly different different construction. Um, uh, I, I would have to go uh, and look and look into it. Sure. But you know, the, the the thing with this with this nut that you were t- uh, uh, explaining just now, very interesting. I need to look into that as well because uh, I always thought um, it's interesting that it has this this you know this this feature. But I thought it's more like for aesthetical purpose. I I, I did to check that. I did too until I I got to actually see it in person. And I think on the modern pieces, like you know, because uh, Certina reissued the DS five hundred and all that, or the PH five hundred or whatever it is, but it doesn't have two crystals anymore. Whereas like yeah. this this Zodiac, which has the same kind of technology, I was looking at it, definitely has these two crystals, which is so strange so i'll try and take some good pictures and send it to you uh in the sunlight yes, and see if please. i can kind of yeah. kind of capture if i can kind of capture both crystals in in a shot and kind of send that to you but i thought that was such a fascinating and interesting way it's almost like putting a dive helmet on the watch before yeah. you put it down which i thought was super cool but yeah, yeah very interesting but but you know back to these you know they, they're developing this this uh valve system for the c-lab 3 and They've given these 40 watches from the first generation Sea Dweller to the Sea Lab 2 uh, um, no, aqu- no, Aquanauts. Sea, no, Sea Lab 2 had uh, still the, the, yes. the regular Submariners. submariners yes, so, 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 right. Okay. And then so these were being, so then the 40 were being developed for the Sea Lab 3 Aquanauts. Exactly. exactly. In preparation for Sea Lab uh, 3, that was was to take place in nine, in late 1967. Right. They, they produced these 40 watches and they already send it to New York. They all have, all these watches have the ROW uh, American import stamp for movements. Okay. At the time, at the time uh, movements still had to, uh, you know, be um, movements that were, not all movements, only the movements that were, uh, you know, like, um, what is the name? That were regulated, you know, especially regulated. They had to, they had, to, they were taxes to protect the American watch industry. Right. Um, the government imposed uh, taxes on 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 watches coming from 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 other countries. Right. So you see that with like Seiko, for example, how they would for international models they would do like a seventeen jewel movement or a twenty one jewel movement, but then uh, domestic Japanese models would get like twenty eight jewels or something like that because they would tax people or they would tax exactly. watches based exactly. on the number of jewels and things like that. Yeah. Okay, yeah, 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 I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. So you, the, the, there was also the 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 thing that uh, some brands had actually regulated movements, but they wrote unregulated or unadjusted uh, uh, on the engraved unadjusted on to to circumvent the mm-hmm. taxes, but they mm-hmm. actually they were. They were adjusted to to several positions, and they were really high high end movements. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so all these watches had the, the the American import stamp, and there you see that these watches were made for the U.S. market for for the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so all these watches were basically made, produced, and then they were sent to uh, to New York to be given to the divers when when Sea Lab three would start. Uh, and then what happened is that um, they were they were basically 
they were building like all kinds of new new uh, you know like decompression chambers they were actually building a, a, a um a diving support vessel for mm. saturation divers the US Navy and um in this diver uh, support vessel they had this um this huge decompression chamber consisting of several chambers you know that you could basically compress one team and they would go in and uh, 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 and, and basically you know uh, exit exit through with with the um, uh, with the personal transport capsule that would bring them to to the to the to the depth at, at which they were working and they had a second decompression chamber so that they could have like two different teams working simultaneously so it was a it was a huge undertaking and what happened there is that i think i think around mid 1967 they realized that they had used like the wrong materials for these decompression chambers and so they had to hold the the C Lab three project, and it was postponed for one year to uh, basically October, nineteen sixty eight. So now you have you have these watches that are ready in New York to be given to these divers, but the project is postponed, mm -hmm. right? And what happens next is that the idea for the valve reaches Rolex and then they realize, oh, you know, we, we, we made the seed weller for, for, for saturation divers, but actually it won't work because the watches will get damaged during decompression, mm -hmm. right? So what happens next is they get the idea, they file the patent application for it, and then they have no uh, opportunity to actually have the, the valve tested because at the at the time there were no major saturation diving projects underway, right? So they basically said, okay, we have to wait until you know C Lab C Lab starts. So basically, what happens is the 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 the, the whole uh, valve thing is halted, put uh, you know uh, on 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 hold. And and so what happens next is that in March 1968, uh, news breaks that this uh, um, upcoming French uh, professional diving company Comex, um, uh, they come up with this with this new world record where where uh, the the Comex the Comex founder Henri Delos and an American doctor named uh, um, uh, Ralph. Werner Brauer descended to an absolutely mind-blowing depth of, I think, like 360 meters in a decompression chamber in Marseille, and uh, and that's just amazing mm -hmm. because with with one with one thing they they just uh, obliterated everything that had been done uh, so far, and so and so the the story there is that Dr. Ralph Brauer was um, investigating. A phenomenon, uh, a syndrome that occurred when divers try to compress, try to uh, compress themselves uh, or expose themselves to a pressure equivalent of 300 meters or 1,000 feet. So they started getting this syndrome where they would have like tremors mm. and like headaches. They could not focus. It was like you know, it, it was like a like a like a physiological barrier, you know, that was was at this one thousand feet uh, uh, level, 
And so Dr. Brower was investigating this and how to overcome it. Um, and so he he was experimenting with animals and stuff like this. And, you know, uh, he came up with the idea of actually using uh, hydrogen, the highly expl explosive gas hydrogen to uh, alleviate this, uh, this uh, he called it the high pressure um, nervous syndrome to alleviate the syndrome and, uh, and uh, allow divers to go even much deeper. So he went, he went into the pressure chamber in, at the COMEX uh, uh, decompression center in Marseille to basically test that on himself, to experience the hyper, high pressure nervous syndrome on his own body. Because his, um, his philosophy was that it was uh, more direct if he would expose himself to, to this type of things than to having to interview a diver, mm -hmm. you know, and, and every diver would explain it differently. So he, would, he wanted to experience that on himself. And that's why he did that. And so this, this, this dive was like, was like a major break, breakthrough because no one had reached those depth, uh, uh, depths uh, at, the, at the time, right? And so Rolex became wind of, of, of these experiments uh, by COMEX. And um, so they tried to get into COMEX, you know, with the idea of the valve, you know, with the prototype and stuff like this. But then they realized that COMEX was, was actually already working with Omega. And COMEX was working on Omega to, to create the ultimate, the ultimate saturation diver watch. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so actually Dr. Brower in, in one of the pictures in this 360 meter dive, you see him wearing like a, like a tuna can, looks like a tuna can on his wrist. And it's actually one, uh, a very early, um, you know, like a, like a Seamaster 300, but a special version for saturation mm -hmm. divers. And so Rolex wants to get into this project, but it's, they see there's a dead end because, uh, you know, there's, a, there's already a partnership between COMEX and, and Omega. And they see themselves in this very tight spot now because if, if you look at the timeline, they had, Rolex had already lost the race to space against Omega, against the Speedmaster, right? They had also, they had also like, uh, you know, tried to, to get into the space program with the Rolex Daytona. That's why they called it Cosmograph and stuff, right? And uh, so, so they lost, they lost to, uh, to Omega. And they saw themselves right now in this, in this you know, they, they were under pressure because if Omega beats them, you know, in you know, there was like the outer space, and then the, there was the inner space, which which was all this saturation diving experiment, and and they were you know they they were scared that they would lose the race to the inner space against Omega as well. So they had to do something, and then they realized that the the the, the cooperation between Brower and Comex was actually between the 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 the, the University of. Uh, of North Carolina in Wilmington uh, and COMEX. So mm. Brower had no, you know, he had no connection to Omega, you know, he could do whatever he wanted. So they basically reached out to Brower and uh, Brower, this is, this, is, this is where it gets very interesting. So Brower is the guy who, who basically, um, he's, he's, he's the guy who, who creates this new method of, of, um, enabling divers to go below 
300 meters or 1,000 feet by breathing, you know, a new gas, hydrogen, the highly explosive hydrogen gas. And so, so during that conversation between Rolex and, and Brower, Rolex learns about this, that, that all of a sudden it's not, no longer just helium, but there's a new gas involved, hydrogen. And, uh, you know, uh, Brower was, was telling them that, you know, they would probably reach new uh, physiological barriers at some point at certain depths, and they would have to use more gases. You know, there would be, you know, a, a variety of gases involved in saturation diver diving in, in the future. So this is a very interesting thing. Because if you look at the very first prototype that was made for Brower, so basically Rolex went back to the drawing board. They, uh, they created a completely new case with enough space to, to install the valve. Um, if you look at the case, it's slightly different than the, the, the earlier ones. It's a little bit thicker. And, um, but it uses the same, the same dials, the same single red dial. And um, so they, they created this, this, um, this, this uh, new prototype specifically for Brower. And if you look at the case pack, it doesn't say like oyster helium release valve, but it says oyster gas escape valve. So they use this more general term of mm -hmm. gas. They didn't want to, you know, just talk about helium, but you know, because Brower told them there will be more gases involved in the future. They basically use this gas term, which is also very interesting. And, uh, and so they created this, um, this, this watch for him. And Brower also told them that uh, all this, all this, um, you know, all these, these tests that they were making to experience the high pressure nervous syndrome, they were all leading up to one particular test which was one of the most daring diving enterprises ever made by man and that was comex hydra hydra the the uh, you know the the, the monster from the uh, greek the mythical the, yeah herculean with, trial there yes the, with the different hats yes um yeah i mean the interesting thing about that is also why hydra hydra the different hats maybe has to do with with the different gases that they would use it's just a it's a very, very, it's also, you know, a hint to hydrogen, of course, mm -hmm. but it's, it's just, it's just very interesting how they, how they, you know, uh, named this, this, uh, this, uh, this spectacular dive that was, was upcoming. So basically Rolex made this particular prototype specifically for this Hydra dive, where for the first time in history, divers would attempt to breathe hydrogen underwater. Mm. And uh, you know to see to see what would happen, and you know because the hydrogen is highly explosive, this involved you know like uh, a lot of security measures. I mean, you you, you know, this gas is highly highly explosive, especially in combination with oxygen. So they had to you know they had the, the whole operation was was uh, specifically designed to to actually contain this uh, highly explosive hydrogen hydrogen gas. And uh, so this this very first prototype was was developed for Hydra, which is very interesting. And so in the past, people were talking about you know that that basically uh, the valve, the helium valve, had been co-developed uh, between uh, Comex and Rolex, which is completely nonsense because 
the valve idea came from uh, U.S. Navy Sea Lab Aconal Bob Barth, right? Mm -hmm. But here you see that there's some kind of true to the story that the first valve was somehow, you know, involved with Comex because it was made for this particular dive, right? And this is uh, this is Brower. And mm -hmm. um, so in my in my recent Europe trip, I had the opportunity to uh, to actually visit the the owner of of the Brower watch and uh, and actually you know you know have it in my hands for the first mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. I wrote a very uh, you know in depth article about the watch, and uh, and I just wanted to have that watch in my hands once. Very interesting. And the watch was in such spectacular shape still as well too. Absolutely. I just wrote uh, an article about that watch where you can actually see it uh, on my wrist mm -hmm. and in detail. And I also published a video on YouTube where you see the watch in action. It's a spectacular watch. And, you know, when, when you, you know, knowing what this watch is all about, having it in your hands is just a, an amazing experience. I think we were talking a little bit off camera, like I'm surprised Rolex doesn't want that, you know, considering what it is and, and like it literally being like, the original seed piece that started this whole line really in its, yeah. in its iteration as it lasted for decades and, and continues to last like how do they not care about having this watch but i, I guess they don't they're not really interested in in kind of hunting yeah. that stuff down I'm, I'm not sure whether they are not interested maybe they don't see the the real value of it maybe mm. they they are not they are not aware of of what what that watch actually represents i mm -hmm. mean that's that's just that's uh, you know that's the 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 genesis the genesis of the of the modern dive watch mm -hmm. and uh, you know if, if if you think if you think modern dive watch I mean the the submariner and and of course the sea dweller are mm -hmm. are up there I mean they are the the, the top of the of the Christmas tree mm -hmm. and uh, you know I I just think the Rolex is not not really you know maybe not really aware of um, of of the importance of that watch, and mm -hmm. that's why they are, you know, maybe not 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 yet interested. Well, I mean, the Sea Dweller is, uh, you know, obviously a watch that is desirable, but it's still not really the focus by any means of the Rolex line, right? It's not really a piece that a lot of people, uh, when they say, "Hey, I want to pick up my first Rolex," it's not really the piece that a lot of people gravitate to, right? I mean, it's still very much the Daytona or the uh, yeah. the the uh, sub, sub, Submariner. If you're looking for going for a steel dive watch right? <laughs> or a steel tool watch, yeah. so um, it, it's it's interesting to uh, it's interesting to see how you know they've still updated this line and continued on with uh, maintaining the heritage of the line. I think, but it's sort of a very interesting distinction between the Sea Dweller and then the rest of Rolex watches, right? Like we see, especially particularly with modern um, Rolex. The direction they're kind of going where they're trying to really i think they're still maintaining their their quality but they're really aiming towards luxury now whereas they're still producing this very heavy duty tool oriented dive watch being the sea dweller that is really like nothing else in the lineup i know like they just came out with like a a two-tone version of it and some goofy stuff like that that no one's ever gonna buy but i mean the rest the the original iteration of it at, or as close to it as they can get in the current model of it you can yeah. you can buy this amazing tool watch still and it's just been upgraded and improved over time to deal with you know the the rigors of, of what we deal with now in modern saturation diving yeah yeah 
But so, there's, so what? There's, so there's a story. There's a story to the to the two tone uh, sea dweller. I mean, it's not something that came just out of the blue. I mean, if you okay. if you look at the if you look at the history of Rolex, they uh, they had this. Um, you know, they, they, they had this experimental, you know, uh, dive watches that they used to uh, to attach to the Batis calf. You, oh. you mentioned the Batis calf earlier. Um, and they were, they all, they were, all of them, they had this uh, two-tone bracelet on it, which is like weird because the watch was basically, you know, attached to the outside of the Batis calf when they went down to this crazy depth. And uh, it was, it was basically like, a, you know, this, uh, this two-tone bracelet, which is also interesting. Mm. So I think I think making the sea dweller, uh, the two-tone sea dweller, has also a little bit is, its roots in that particular, you know, like a like a crazy crazy dive watch that they made to to go down to the Mariana Trench. I guess I guess Rolex doesn't really ever do anything without having a reason for it. But it, it's... yeah, you know, and they, they 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 you know they produce so many different things. I mean, there's. Uh, I think there's uh you know there's there's uh there's there's, there's so so much so much um substance uh in their in their history um that they they have so many drawers where they just can take out something that they did in the past and just uh you know basically bring bring it into the future. Well we were saying too there's so much stuff that we probably don't even know about that Rolex yeah, has sitting in, absolutely. In, in a secret archive I mean, somewhere that the, the yeah. world will never ever see or never has seen. Right. So especially during this, this era of development that they were having, like, have we really, like we've seen the prototypes that we've seen. Right. But I'm always curious about the prototypes we've never seen. Right. Like, yeah. like what kind of crazy stuff did they come up with that they slapped that, that crown logo on and said, this is a Rolex that we just never quite made it to production. That's always been very interesting. Yeah. Very interesting for me, but you know, back back to sort of the timeline and the story of this of this this piece. Like, so he gets the, Rolex develops this connection with uh, with Comex, and you know with with this this hydro dive that they're going to do. What happens next? Okay, so what happens next is I think we need to talk about about the, the whole Omega thing because it's a. Uh... I think it's also a crucial part of of this this whole story, sure. and, and you you will see later on why. So so Omega is working with with Comex to create this uh, ultimate uh, you know saturation diver watch, and uh, and you know I think they know they know about the helium issues, and uh, they want to make a watch that doesn't uh, let helium in in the first place. So it's this like super tight watch made you know made to resist any any small molecules uh, that could enter the watch and and so the very first so they also made a hydra a hydra watch omega also made a hydra watch uh, that is basically the case of the omega 1000 so the omega 1000 was 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 the very first iteration of the ploprof okay uh, or you know, like you know, the early Omega One Thousand and the Omega Ploprof Six Hundred, you know, with the with the button to you know to mm -hmm. rotate the bezel and and that that special crown, that was only the second the second version. And what is very interesting here, and I talked to the to the uh, museum director Petros, the Omega museum director. Uh, about this when I was working on my article uh, about uh, the genesis of the of of the sea dweller, 
and uh, he told me that uh, that basically Omega uh, was very happy with the Omega One Thousand prototype, with the you know with the functions, and they they thought it's 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 a great watch, but then Omega came up with the design of the of the of the six hundred, you know this over engineered watch with this uh, weird case, the crown on the left on the left hand side, you know, with this special crown uh, uh, construction where, the, where basically the crown uh, closes or pre presses the, the, the gaskets against the case without torsion force. So it's basically just, you know, it, it goes in, uh, I don't know how you, how you call it, like is it, uh, radial, no. So basically it goes, it goes straight into the, into into against against the, the gasket against, against the gasket without turning it you is, know, that, the, the, is that not kind of how the panerai crowns work where they just basically exactly. push, push straight in and this, compress the gaskets this, right this is this is the same the same system basically mm -hmm. where you where you basically you know the the crown is not is not screwed into the case but just pressed into the case or against against the against the um, the gasket and this was done to basically avoid torsion forces on on the rubber which you know uh, leads to material fatigue and at some point you know the, the watches are not tied anymore so it was a it was a very smart it was a very smart construction the proper of 600 but uh, from what i understand and also what came out of uh, of interviews with um, with uh, with the comex divers and was also confirmed to me by uh, by the Omega um, uh, Museum director Petros is that the Comex guys didn't like the ProProf 600. Mm. It was just too complicated to operate. You know, it was just uh, you know over engineered. It was it was something that they didn't see as as necessary. Mm -hmm. But what happened is that um, basically Omega. Uh, uh you know uh, basically stopped working on the on the omega 1000 version and 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 continued to improve the 600 and basically forced the 600 onto comex and comex was not happy about this watch um and and i will tell you later what what happened and uh so you know comex was working with uh with omega but then at some point Omega Comex works with Rolex, and there, mm -hmm. there's a reason for this, of course. And um, but before this, we need to talk about about those forty uh, early sea dweller examples that are lying around in New York uh, that don't have a valve. Mm -hmm. So Brower's watch is the very first valve prototype that was made for Hydra, and then Sea Lab comes up again in in late uh, October 1968. Sea Lab is 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 on the map. And uh, and so what happens there is that Rolex um, New York modifies some of these watches, some of these early sea dwellers. They retrofit the valve, and uh, and uh, you know install like new case bags um, to give to some of the of the Sea Lab three divers for mm. testing purposes. And uh, so Bob Barth received one from what I understand and what he confirmed to me. Uh, and then there are three other watches that were given to divers. One was given to, um, to Joe McInnes, the Canadian uh, explorer. 
who was part of the medical team in CLEV3. One was given to uh, uh, Philippe Cousteau, Jacques Cousteau's son, who was also um, uh, one of the Yakonas for CLEV3 and uh, scheduled to make, uh, you know, like a, like a documentary about CLEV3. And then there's, uh, there's, a, there's a third watch that was uh, given to, to another diver, which is not clear yet who, who this guy was. And um, so, so they retrofitted the valve into this, into this uh, already produced non-valve sea dwellers. And that's the explanation why there are uh, the earliest sea dwellers from the 1.6 million case number range that actually have a valve. Those watches were, were uh, subsequently retrofitted to be given to C-Lab 3 uh, guys for testing purposes. <clears throat> so anyway, so now we have, we have this, uh, you know, uh, Rolex knows they have to go with the valve. The, the valve becomes an integral part of the C-Dweller. Um, but now Rolex has the problem um, that uh, C-Lab 3 was basically, uh, you know, uh, Barry, Barry Cannon died uh, while they were preparing the, the underwater habitat for, for the first team to enter the habitat. And, and so C-Lab 3 is, is like, uh, you know, is, is canceled. And so they, you know, they, they, they lift uh, the habitat. And so nobody talks about C-Lab anymore mm -hmm. because, because uh, this guy died there. So it was a, which was a huge thing. So now basically, you know, C-Lab is out out of the question for for Rolex, and now Comex is like is like the non plus ultra in 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 diving achievements. They beat one record after the other, or mm. establish one record after the other. They create all these new programs, you know, where they where they go deeper and deeper, and they are very confident about themselves. And so now. Uh, uh, Rolex has the problem that they basically need to promote the sea dweller, but the 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 top company that could do that is actually working with with Omega. Mm -hmm. But now we have Omega uh, uh, Comex, who is not very happy with 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 the uh, with the watch that was forced onto them, the the Ploprof six hundred. And so what happens next is that basically. Uh, the Rolex director reaches out to Henri Delos and uh, proposes to him that he will give him, I don't know how many watches for free, uh, and that they can even have the, the Comex logo on the Rolex dial if they want. And uh, there's an interview actually uh, made by Jake from uh, Rolex magazine with, um, with Henri Delos where he explains this whole situation the interview has never been published is a podcast mm. uh, but i have it and Henri Delos explains there that the moment that the rolex uh, director offered him all these watches he immediately you know told uh, told omega to bugger off mm. so he stopped the the cooperation with uh, with omega right away there mm. and uh, so there's there's two obviously there's two different reasons first uh, Comex was not very happy with the watch that was forced onto them, and uh, and secondly, uh, how can you say no to uh, free watches, right? And then from a from a top company like Rolex, right? That then even sounds great. Rolex Comex is just yeah. a, just a perfect fit. 
So that's how basically Rolex, uh, you know, uh, set their foot into the whole uh, Comex, Comex thing. So what happened to Comex eventually? Oh, Comex uh, still exists, but uh, you know, all this. Uh, I mean, they they reached uh, they reached record dives thanks to the research of uh, Dr. Werner Brauer, Dr. Ralph Werner Brauer with hydrogen. They had in 1988 a Hydra. I think Hydra 8, they reached 534 meters mm. in the open sea. I mean, that's just crazy. And they decompressed for, for, for longer than a week, I think. And then I think in 19... Uh, wait, let me check. I think in the 1990s was that. Um, they, uh, they pressurized someone to even uh, 701 feet. In a, in a pressure chamber. And uh, of course, all these guys were wearing Rolex seed wellers, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and you see them in all pictures when they, you know, are inside the pressure chambers or, you know, doing some work uh, on, on uh, you know, on uh, pipelines. Um, you see them wearing Rolex uh, seed wellers. That's like the best promotion Rolex could get, you know, mm -hmm. and very cheap. I mean, you know, the, uh, th those watches don't, don't cost rolex a lot to produce mm -hmm. but the 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 advantage they they get out from it is just uh you know priceless mm -hmm. so i guess how long did this relationship with comex last for then was this is this still an ongoing relationship that they have to this day or did that eventually uh you know end for whatever reason well i think they are still in in contact i think uh, comex developed um, a special testing device like a like a special pressure testing device for the for the deep sea for the for the rolex seed weller deep sea you know mm -hmm. the one that is like uh you know rated 3900 right. meters i think yeah so they 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 developed this special special uh compression chamber to uh to test uh those watches to to that depth mm. so i think they are still they are still in a in you know I, I, I'm sure they are still somehow in contact. I don't know. I, I don't know if the partnership is is still alive, but I, I am sure they they still have contacts. And uh, yeah, the thing the thing you know the thing with uh, with all these diving achievements is that at some point, robot robotics have become so so uh, sophisticated that it's just a, an unnecessary risk to send people to to those crazy depths mm. you know and then the, and the dive computer no sense. and with dive computers and technology like that people don't really rely on a traditional analog watch anymore some guys might have one as a backup for example but you don't yeah, need yeah. Well, you don't need one anymore right but yeah but you know the, the thing is that you know the divers are no no longer you know of course i mean you know in in dive, uh, rigs oil rigs out there there's they still they still uh, you know use uh, saturation divers but but they don't they don't try to to achieve diving records anymore because it's just that the risk is too high and you know the cost is 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 crazy i mean uh, that's uh, just uh, you know mm -hmm. as as i said earlier i mean operations like this is like like a little bit like landing on the moon you need a you need a you need a, a whole a, a huge team you need mm -hmm. you need equipment you need a diving support vessels you know you need a, it's, a, it's a huge cost involved and and uh because you have you have uh, this robotics that is so highly evolved right now you know that mm -hmm. 
can do the same work without all the risk and uh, mm -hmm. at a much cheaper you know price point mm -hmm. of course. Mm -hmm. so what happens next where does the story continue on from from where we were with with uh basically rolex pushes omega out of the com of the partnership with with comex and now comex <coughs> and rolex have this part have this relationship together and they're they're issuing these these sea dwellers uh, out to these these aquanauts or to these these workers that are you're doing uh, yeah. pipe work and things like that. So like, how does the sea dweller evolve, and how does the story evolve? Well, I mean, they what what they do is that they make the sea dweller uh, more capable. You know, mm -hmm. uh, they they uh, at some point they develop uh, a new type of valve. Mm. Uh, a more more compact more compact uh, device the the first device was a very rudimentary you know it was just basically like a stem a conical stem with a rubber gasket and then you had like a like a flat uh, spring and then you know it, the, the, when the pressure was too high inside the watch it would uh, 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 you know uh, um, press against the stem and then with the spring it would release Mm -hmm. Will release the helium, but that was a very simple. Uh, it's it's actually the one that is patented. If you if you look at the drawings in the patent application, you see, mm -hmm. you, see you see how that works, and it's a very rudimentary valve. And then they developed a, a more compact, more more uh, um, you know also got believe I believe easier to service watch that is in in one piece. So basically, you can take out the whole thing and just screw it in back. Yeah. It's, it's, much easier to service and that sort of became like the modern iteration of the valve like that's sort of, it's kind of hard to see on camera but very similar yeah, exactly. to kind of what yeah. i have on here and it was interesting when you pointed out that you know it said gas escape valve instead of helium escape valve it actually says that on here too it says gas escape valve around the outside of it so it's interesting because obviously omega for example which now uses them on their watch they have the little he specifically indicating it's a helium escape valve but that's right yeah. rolex and and by extension tudor stuck with the gas es escape valve yeah uh, and, and this this is all this is this comes from uh you know from brower's research he mm -hmm. he's uh he's the guy who gave uh, rolex the idea to to use this more general term and not you know to just uh focus on helium mm -hmm. so so they so they so they develop the watch and they're continuing to develop it we start to see um you know i, I from my understanding and I, I haven't followed the sea dweller i've always been interested in sea dwellers but i haven't followed it super closely um you know you start to see things like like this connection with james cameron you're starting to see this this connection with deep sea exploration in other ways beyond just um you know, challenging the depths that humans can go, but just just deep sea exploration in general. Is that sort of the role that Rolex is really pushing for these watches? I guess like who is the watch for now in a modern context? Deep sea welders? Who who's really using these watches? You know? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know the 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 thing the thing with uh, with Rolex watches is that they are quite expensive. Mm -hmm. I think. Every saturation diver would love to own, uh, uh, you know, like a, a Rolex Sea Dweller, um, but most people probably probably don't. And uh, you know, I think also a, a Rolex Sea Dweller uh, would be an overkill, you know, a luxurious overkill inside a pressure chamber. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, it's a it's a tool watch in the truest sense of the word, but it's also a very expensive piece of 
of luxury, right? You'd so have to be um, a dive guy that also really likes watches to want to use one. Yeah, would... but you know, I I, th I think the Sea Dweller has evolved into something that is just, you know, is is it's 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 more like like a highly capable watch that if you would go into a pressure chamber, you know, you could, but mm -hmm. you will never, you know, it's it's like it's like it's like you know like like a it's like owning a, a, a you know like a Mercedes G wagon that is highly capable you know with 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 all these uh, different uh, differential uh, uh, how do you say uh, sperren sperren in, in in German you know where you ba basically can 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 uh, can can block the differential and, oh, and like sort of, lock, lock it and unlock lock, it yeah, lock, yeah. Lock, locking differential, differential. Lock. Yeah, it has three different uh, locks. I mean, it's a highly capable car. I had one when I was in Switzerland, and you know, if if you wanted to, you could you you could basically go everywhere with the car. Mm -hmm. You know, but the thing is, you know, nobody nobody who owns a car like this actually really uses it for that purpose. And and the same is is with Seedweller. It's just it's just like a it's just like a highly capable thing for your for your wrist. You could if you if you want. But you know, is you you will never you will actually never do it. It's like it's like owning a Ferrari that you know has a has a top speed of three hundred fifty kilometers per hour. You know, you will probably nobody will ever drive so fast because there's just no opportunity except on a, on a on a racetrack. But you know, it's it's just good to know for yourself that you could if you if you wanted to, right? I suppose it's, I mean I mean even at this being 500 meter dive rate I live in a landlocked province with no oceans anywhere within a thousand kilometers of me so I'm never going to go that deep underwater but I mean it, it you're right there's something to be said for just knowing the watch can do that right so I guess when yeah, and do... I think I think that's that's what what is uh, what it is all about I mean it's just having a, a piece of equipment in your on your wrist uh, you know that 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 uh, you know has the capability to to do something exceptional. You know, and I so think... when did they stop being sort of used as the industry standard for a watch and as a reliable tool? When did you know sea dwellers kind of become, I guess, obsolete? Well, I think uh, as I told you earlier, uh, Bob Barth. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, told me the story that uh, you know the only reason why saturation divers have a watch is to see what time it is. Mm -hmm. There's no other uh, specific reason why you would uh, need to wear a watch because you know it's 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 basically this it's this huge operation saturation diver with a commando post. You know, they supervise your heart rate, your your oxygen levels in your blood. You know, they they supervise the the mixture you're breathing. The pressure inside the pressure chamber, everything is controlled by them. So you don't actually need a watch. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just in the pressure chamber to see what time it is. And uh, oh, something that I forgot to tell you. You know, the the, the first sea dwellers had had the date uh, uh, um, function, right? Mm -hmm. For the first time, a Rolex dive watch had a date, and this is also like a direct. Uh, hint to sea dwellers because they were staying underwater for several days or weeks or months so that they could actually see what what date it is underwater. So the sea dweller sort of is what led to the development then of the submariner date. Yeah, that that was in 1968. Um, uh, I, I think they thought it would be you know, but you know, by the time by the time in the, in the late 1960s, 
um, all these dive watches had become, you know, also like a, like a, just a cool watch to wear, even mm -hmm. if you are not a diver. You know, it's just it's just this this thing, you know, to wear like a like a cool tool watch on your wrist, even if you if you don't use it. I think by the time, um, I think the the the, the sixteen eighty uh submariner the, the 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 red the red submariner i think that's that's when actually that's when actually all these watches start to become more like a luxury object rather than than a tool watch mm -hmm. because they are also already reaching you know having very expensive prices where where people you know don't don't want to hit them with all kinds of equipments with the you know with the met metal bottles of compressed air you know I wore um, a few times my my Rolex Submariner in uh, uh, during dives in in Thailand, and um, all these dive instructors and uh, you know the, the the guys who accompany you on dives, they all were the citizen. You know, very cheap watches, dive watches, but mm -hmm. very capable watches, mm -hmm. and uh, they are just great. I I had some of them in my hands, and I thought, wow, this is really a cool watch because it's just it's a watch that is. Um, doesn't cost much, and if you hit it somewhere, you know, it just you know, just buy a new one. Mm -hmm. you know? it just it just doesn't doesn't really you know it doesn't hurt you as if you if you scratch like your very expensive Rolex watch, right? So they saw me diving with the with this submariner, and they were all thinking like this guy is like crazy, you know? Why would he go down down uh, you know? Uh, with 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 such an expensive watch it just makes makes no sense of course you can do it and it's made for for that purpose but nowadays it's just uh it makes makes no sense so at a certain point where they started to sort of uh you know they started to become more of a luxury piece as, as, as it were and you know we start to get into like applied indices on the dials glossy dials things like that like more more of the luxurious kind of parts of of like the rolex lineup that we start to see into like the the, the late 70s into the 80s and things like that the sea dweller other than you know upgrades to perhaps movements and things like that really stays unchanged up until the was it the uh, late 2000s when we kind of get the iteration of like the, the C -C -C or the sea dweller 4k right sort of that transitionary model yeah. that was like the shortest the shortest time uh or the shortest run of a sea dweller or of a, of, a, of a watch that rolex almost ever did up to that point where essentially it was only yeah. around for like three years and then they switched to uh this 43 millimeter case being the deep sea case and then now that's sort of the the only sea dweller that's available for, for purchase now is this larger sized one with sort of this gradient dial and, and and fully indexed bezel and things like that yeah yeah so i mean the development is uh to to more capability i mean the the, the first ones were were um you know were rated to 600 meters mm -hmm. i mean first 500 meters then in 1969, they made the, the the patent the first patent pendings with the 600 the double red with the 600 meter death rating or 610 meters, um, and then more and more you know it's like, then you have like one double double the thing um, 1,200 meters, and then in uh, in uh, 19 uh, you know with the with the deep sea special you have already 3,900 meters, so it's it's basically it's basically an evolution towards more capability, more mm -hmm. you know, the more water resistance. Uh, of course, new new movements. But 
but but the watch itself stays the same you know mm-hmm. i mean it's just uh and it, it's 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 an interesting development, but it's a complete overkill because no, nobody is going to dive to three thousand nine hundred meters. Well, at a certain point in time, it was about developing at developing the watch out of necessity, and then it became about developing the watch just because, right? Just, just because to, you can, just Maybe, to push, you know, just to push the boundaries, yeah. but not to not push the envelope exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you are obviously. So okay. if someone just just one moment, if someone is interested in uh, you know in seeing uh, the, the you know the, all this evolution of the of the of the sea dweller, I created this uh, this timeline uh, that is uh, can be downloaded on my website under the link timelines, and uh, you can see there at, at a glance actually the the whole development of the of the sea dwellers. It's quite interesting to see how. How you know how it developed? How uh, it becomes more capable every every few years? And there you see also in the context uh, with all the diving achievements and the whole sea dweller story. So it's everything is is uh, is in that in that uh, timeline um, infographic. So it's uh, you know if if someone is interested, that would be the place to go to to check that in detail. And you, it's exactly where I was going to go with you. you. Just beat me to the punch, but essentially, yeah, like you, you've done this with Panerai, and now, and you've done this with the Sea Dwellers. Now, like you're obviously a very gifted researcher. You really immerse yourself in the people, the experiences, the individuals that were there, being sure to get these stories from the people that were actually involved while they're still around to get these stories from, and and, and really, you know, really immerse yourself into the history of these pieces. And I guess what was why was it important to you to make that timeline like that? Like that's, that's not, that's not an easy feat to, to create what you have there. And, and, you know, people have seen that with your Panerai timeline, but why did you feel like this was something you need, you wanted to do? Why did this matter to you? Uh, I think it was the same reason as, as with the Panerai timeline, there was just a lot of confusion out there about, mm-hmm. uh, you know, about what really went on uh, about, you know the, the, what I uh, um, explained earlier. You know that people thought that the the vault had been been co-developed with uh, with Comex, which was not true. And uh, there was a lot of misconception out there. And uh, and and I thought there's no better way to actually you know to 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 explain this very complicated and you know very deep reaching with all these different. Uh, diving programs that were involved and you know all the achievements and everything i thought that there's no better way than, than just to create uh, an infographic where you actually see the development of the watches uh placed uh within the context of what happened and and why why something was like that because you know something else happened uh in in history so I think there's no better way than than to to do a visual, uh, you know, like a visual graphic to explain mm-hmm. all this because you can see it at a glance and you and and there's also there's a logic to it. You know, you you see you see something in the timeline and you immediately understand why something is is the way it is. And so with your research regarding Panerai and, and the, the depth of research you went into, you start to discover a lot of, you know, as it were, gremlins, I guess, in some of the, the history, some of the story, the misconceptions that people had about the brand and about the watches. 
and, and that caused a little bit of friction uh, between yourself and I guess like the certain elements of the Panaristi community, right? We talked about that on our previous episode about how people, you know, some people didn't really like necessarily hearing the truth about, you know, some of their pieces that maybe spent a lot of, a lot of money on or something to that effect. Do, have you experienced anything like that with your research into the Sea Dweller uh, watches and, and the community that surrounds them? Or has their reception been different with the information that you come up with as you do your research? Interestingly, not. I mean, it seems to be like a different crowd that is interested in in, in Rolex watches than, than the people that are interested or, or you know, so deeply fan, fanatic mm -hmm. uh, with, with, with Panerai. Um, no, absolutely not. I mean, I, I uh, you know, I published all these articles. I, I set the record straight on on many things, also on, on, on some watches that were not okay or made up or, or whatever. And I didn't experience uh, that kind of hostility uh, that I experienced from the Panaristi community. So somehow the, the, the Rolex crowd has seems to have a different, different, uh, you know, uh, you know, like a relationship uh, to the watches than, uh, than than the Panerai people. I mean, Panerai people identify themselves uh, personally. You know, really, this is a personal thing. I mean, I've seen guys tattooing like uh, uh, Panerai logos and even going as, as far as, you know, probably in a very ignorant way, uh, tattooing like... Uh, 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 fascist propaganda right on, yeah on the body you know like the the, the typical decima mass uh uh crest with the with the skull with the rose in the mouth and the x that's 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 a fascist symbol because that one was created in uh, in uh, early 1944 when when actually the mm -hmm. parts of the decima mass were were working hand in hand with uh with uh with the ss mm -hmm. i mean you know and and were basically were basically hunting down their own people, the the Italian partisans. Yeah, I mean that's that's just crazy. And this, is, I th I think it's ignorance. I think it's ignorance. People are just not aware of it. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, I th I think it's it's just uh, because it's so connected to the whole Panerai theme somehow, and it has never been really. Maybe maybe I should write an article about this, but it has never been been really you know, uh, taken apart in depth that people understand, hey, this is this is actually fascist stuff. I actually think it'd be really interesting to read an article about that. And it's one thing that I find very interesting because there's a lot of people, obviously now that I've had a Panerai for a while, I've been diving a lot into like, you know, straps and strap makers and a lot of like, th there's a whole culture around just having, you know, one of these watches, but some of these strap makers and some of them are, are very well-known strap makers. And I won't name names because I don't want to point fingers or have anyone get you know, hot and bothered about it, but they're selling, you know, along with their straps, like, you know, beaded bracelets and things like that, that have exactly like you're saying, like these fascist symbols made into little beads on their bracelets and things like that. And that's the one thing that always struck me as odd about it is it's like, do you know what that actually means? Do you know what that stands for? Like, it, it's, it's terrible to see yeah. people making money off of something like that as well and you know i get that there's the association in the history but it's like again I, you know you're not gonna go buy a, a a bracelet with you know ss lightning bolts when you go pick up your hugo boss suit right like you're, right. You're, not, right. yeah. you're not gonna do this kind of goofy stuff with anything else but i think i think i think you're right i think a lot of it's ignorance but 
I would be very interested in seeing an article about that kind of calling it out for what it is. Cause I would be curious to see people's reaction to that, yeah. you know, but it's, it's a good point. But I think back to the Rolex thing, like one thing that uh, if I had to hazard a guess is I think that like, there's this entrenched fear in the Rolex community of fakes. Right. And I think that that goes back a long time. Cause I mean, pretty much as long as there's been Rolexes and they've been desirable, there's been fakes of them. Right. I mean, you every once in a while at an old garage sale or something like that, you'll find like a fake from the 1970s or the 1980s. And it's like, yeah. you know, it's total garbage. They didn't have super clones back then. Right. But, you know, there's always been that fear of getting a fake Rolex and your work in, you know, detecting the fake Rolexes, busting the fake Rolexes that show up at auction. And some of these, I mean, Rolex, a, a normal Rolex now command, commands an insane premium, but these pieces that are going to auctions, we're talking hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions yeah, of dollars. Even millions, yes. Exactly. So, you know, people, I think, in that community have that tremendous appreciation for busting fakes. Now, what are some stories or a story if you don't mind sharing of a, a rather prolific sea dweller fake that perhaps you were able to bust or that you're able to you know uh, uncover something that maybe was a misconception about the piece that people weren't aware of yeah so there is one one particular uh, uh single red sea dweller without a valve um that is completely made up and uh the watch was um <clears throat> As interesting, the watch was part of a, of the inventory of a watch fund that was created in the 2010s. So there was this watch fund where people could actually invest into watches because mm. you know, all these watches would just reach crazy prices every few years. The double the price would double and stuff like this. So uh, you know people started to see watches as an investment. So someone created this watch fund. And then these guys bought a number of uh, watches, you know, to to have in their fund, uh, you know. And so this this watch was was part of that fund. And then the fund, uh, you know, I think they also had a wine, like a, a wine mm. fund as well. And and then something happened, and then uh, people removed their investments from it, and then everything just uh, collapsed and. And so, so this is when when this watch actually entered, like the the you know the, the or tried to enter the market, and um, it was uh, offered at an antiquorum uh, auction, I think in two thousand two thousand maybe seventeen or eighteen. I don't remember anymore, but um, I had already done a, a lot of in depth research um, in this field, and. Um, and so the movement number of that watch wasn't uh, wasn't uh, you know consistent with uh, with single red sea dwellers, and it also had a like a weird like a weird one point seven million uh, uh, case number. So to to understand this, so the the very first sea dwellers without a valve, uh, the first forty examples, they were they had one point six million case numbers. Then Brower's watch that was made in uh, in early 1968 has a 1.8 million case number. There you see that is slightly mm -hmm. later, right? But uh, what happened is um, before before uh, Rolex got the idea for the valve, 
they had already started production of 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 the uh, serial production of this of the non-valve seed wellers mm -hmm. of the 500 meter non-valve seed wellers so they already made a number of cases um for those watches and those were made after the 1.6 so it's a 1.7 so the thing with the 1.7 million seed wellers is that most of them were retrofitted to include the valve but this was done in the late 19 late 1970 71 72 they did that in different batches and you can see that by the movement numbers so basically they had they had they, they had produced the cases and then they installed the latest movements in it so you have a 1.7 million case number that is actually still from 1967 from late 1967 but you have a 1971 movement number and there you see that this actually this is how it happened they produced a number of cases already in preparation to to market this watch but then they had this whole thing with the with the valve that they realized that they were not up to the task you know for saturation divers and uh, and so they 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 halted all these all these uh, cases they basically kept these cases and and then they realized they could retrofit the valve into it and they 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 retrofitted it i think in in three different batches from what i understand but they also sold from this 1.7 million uh, uh, case number range, they also sold a handful of watches that didn't have the valve for some reason. And it's inexplicable why they would make in 1970, 1971, a seed weller without a valve to sell on the market. I mean, one of these watches was sold, I see, I think in in Norway or something in in, in 1971, there's a receipt a non-valve seed weller with a with a double red mark two dial which is from 1970 71 72 um with the 1971 72 movement number and it was sold you know it's just inexplicable why why they sold a, a non-valve seed weller but anyway they exist in earlier days people thought that these non-valve seed wellers were early prototypes especially the 1.7 million the 1.7 million without the valve people thought they were prototypes and this is also something that um that i basically uh, debunked in one of my articles uh because you know you see you, you can you can actually you can actually tell by the type of dial that these watches have and the movement number that they were not from 1967 but from later so it's a it's a very easily easily debunked and uh, but nevertheless, nobody knows why these watches exist. But some dealers thought they could do some some uh, you know some uh, smart thing by basically installing earlier dials into these 1.7 million uh, watches and claim that they were early prototypes, mm. but without changing the movement. So the movement still says 1971, right? But but the dial is is uh, is from earlier. So they they did that with all kinds of dials, with you know with uh, with uh, with a uh, with a mark with a mark zero dial that is in between the single red seed weller and the double red seed weller mark one. There is one particular double red dial um, that that has been made in very very small numbers. 
And some dealers would take that dial and install it in a 1.7 million uh, non-valve uh, seed weller and then claim it was an early prototype, which is complete nonsense. But anyway, so one dealer who was even smarter than these guys thought it would be great to install a single red dial into a 1.7 million non-valve watch and claim that it was that it was a you know an original single red uh, watch. And so this watch was was uh, offered by Antiquorum, and then um, uh, that's the the one that was in this fund uh, offered by Antiquorum. Uh, I wrote an article about it. It remained unsold. Then it was offered again. Then I wrote again an article about it, and then Antiquorum claimed it had sold for for a crazy amount of almost half a million uh, U.S. dollars in Hong Kong. <laughs> and uh, but it's it's a, it's it's nonsense because they just claimed that it had been sold because I had written an article about it, and uh, they basically wanted to save face, right? So they they bid themselves on the watch or had their friends bid on the watch. And then they claimed it was sold, but if you go on the on the on their website and you search for that watch, uh, it's it is it is uh, still listed as unsold. But on Instagram, they claimed oh five hundred thousand dollars, you know, wow, new record, whatever. Um, very funny, very funny story. So I wrote an article about that. Um, the watch had been had been promoted by one of the mainstream. Uh, uh, media uh, watch outlets, mainstream watch media outlets. And uh, so I reached out to this guy and I told him, hey, the watch is actually made up. I mean, it's it's a Frankenstein watch. It was never born like this. It's completely made up to fool people. Uh, please, uh, please remove, remove the article or at least uh, um, write a note that the watch is not okay. He didn't react. And then I wrote an article about this guy actually, you know, not giving a damn about, you know, mm. about actually promoting a fake watch, and uh, that was also something that was uh, which uh, was a big thing in the in the watch community. But I think, I think just Rolex Rolex guys just appreciate this this type of information, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and I think because they have a different somehow a different relationship to to the watches. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's I mean, these are <coughs> these are big names and big watches that we're talking about here, and the, the the amount of like scumbaggery, I guess, that goes on with some of the stuff that happens with the Panerais and the Rolexes, and and you know, yeah. and then your ability to kind of do this detective work is one of the things that you know has obviously garnered you a huge audience and a huge appreciation from people, but but also really like you're really serving the community in a really uh, meaningful way and being able to help people from a losing their hard-earned money and b from you really people are really able to navigate what's real and what's fake by by yeah. referencing your I mean, that's that has always been the goal i mean i mean mm -hmm. in in this lucky position that i have you know so much spare time that i can really dive deep into into this uh, whole topic and then and really you know uh, unearth all this all this interesting information mm. and stuff and you know for me it's just uh it's just uh it was always a goal the goal was always to to help people uh, make well-informed uh, investment decisions especially with uh you know higher higher end uh, watches mm -hmm. and uh 
I think I think you know people people really appreciate it. Collectors appreciate it. Uh, you know, dealers dealers who deal with uh, with uh, all these kinds of shenanigans probably not so much, mm-hmm. but uh, but they they keep quiet because they know that uh, the, you know they don't want to expose themselves themselves to anything, right? I mean, uh, yeah. We hope your sights don't land on them. Yeah, I mean, you know, a, a lot of a lot of guys think that it's better to 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 just not you know just not get into my ra- radar at all of course uh, ah. a lot of people a lot of people try to to be nice you know some you know there's, there's also there's also a lot of dealers who actually share a lot of information with me you know if, when they when they have like a, an interesting piece for sale i will reach out to them and and then they will share like detailed pictures about the watch for my database so that i can properly document it I mean, there's there's all kinds of things. There's there's mm-hmm. this type of people. Then there's people they they would never share anything. There's people they always cover up the case numbers because you know if if it comes out that the watch was manipulated, it come it could come back to them. You know, they always say, oh no no, it's because someone could claim that the watch is actually stolen. You know, but it's just uh, it's mm-hmm. just a a security measure, in my opinion, for most dealers just to not get into any trouble. Interesting. That's a, I, I always wondered about that. But yeah, I think like, you know, the good dealers that are interested in sharing the information, particularly with someone like you who is well known and you have a, a documented track record. I mean, it just helps build public confidence in their own brand, but also public confidence in, you know, sort of the dealer network as a whole, right? I mean, sharing information, being open, you know, being transparent, even the guys who are then, I mean, I'm, you know, we don't, we're not going to name names or anything with the guys who are snitching on the other guys that are selling or making these fake watches. I mean, they're actually creating a better space for everybody to to buy, sell and purchase these watches because they, uh, it's just, it's, it's just like, it's when we're getting into that kind of money and this level of provenance and then these kinds of pieces, like there's just, there's no room for mistakes. Like, you know, we're talking watches that cost more than houses. Right. So it's, it's really, really interesting to kind of see, how that relationship works and it's awesome that you're able to develop that relationship with this like with these dealers but also just to do the work that you're doing yeah you know i think i think a, a big uh, especially in the beginning people were a little bit suspicious especially because of all the misinformation that came from the from the from the panelistic community you know all mm-hmm. these conspiracy theories about me that i was like you know just a just a, a some kind of a a spokesman for a puppeteer out there who wanted to destroy people and stuff like this. So there, there has been put a lot of uh, and published also in forums and stuff like this. You know that 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 I had ulterior motives that mm-hmm. you know it was all about hurting people and destroying their property and stuff like this. And then slowly, I think I think people started to understand that there's absolutely no truth to this. I mean, you know, people are not stupid. Uh, you know, people have a have, have a brain, especially open-minded people. They 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 see what's going on. They also see that I that I not mindlessly attack any everyone or every watch at auction and stuff like this. But mm-hmm. but very punctually and very specifically take out made up or or fake watches uh, uh, out of out of uh, circulation. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the, the goal, as said, has always been to to help the community and and be. Yeah, be be an asset for the community, you know, not not anything else. 
Well, I think that's something that you have definitely uh, greatly achieved. I think anyone who's listened to our previous episodes, listened to our current episode, will listen to this episode or has ever taken the time to read any of your articles or enjoy any of the content you've created and definitely see that in in the way you, you talk about these watches and the passion that you have and, and the genuine care that you have. You know, I don't think, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't think there's too many people out there who legitimately think that you're like, you know, a, uh, a secret puppet for the, the watch mafia sent to destroy the community or <laughs> whatever it is that they accuse you of being. But yeah. if anyone ever has any doubts, I mean, I would encourage them to listen to any of our episodes or definitely yeah. head over and read any of your articles. Jose, I'm having get... I'm I'm having some uh, just just for context I'm having some discussions right now on the Rolex forum uh, about about Panerai watches because someone posted one of my articles about uh, about all this uh, downgrading and you know claiming mm -hmm. in-house when it's not in-house and stuff like this and there's there's a number of guys there who still try to you know perpetuate all this nonsense you know about conspiracy theories you know that there's a vendetta i have a vendetta against panerai you know like it's it's just it's just it's just interesting that that people try to discredit you not not on the on on the facts and on the uh, you know on the things you you talk but just with with some mindless uh accusations that have no basis in reality well it couldn't be farther from the truth much like we i mean we spent six hours talking about panerai not because we hate them but because we love them and we want them to be better right That's right but we're That's not right. but it's not like people who hate something don't spend that kind of time and effort creating you know a, a historical timeline or you know, writing the articles that you write they would just you know say some kind of gibberish and that would be the end of it and you know short fast and to the point just to cut the brand down yeah. and it's just it's it couldn't be farther from the truth and i think again the people who know yeah. you and know your content know that that simply isn't true is there yeah. anything uh more regarding sea dwellers or about what you're doing that you feel like you'd like to share before we kind of move into wrapping this episode up yeah, I think we we should talk about the the whole Doxa story. Yes, um, great. Yeah, I think that, we almost forgot. That'd be a great way, I think, to to wrap things up and share that that yeah. really interesting story. Yeah. yeah, go for it. So okay, so this guy, I think he was like the dire director of 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 Doxa. Mm -hmm. He posted, I think, one a letter, or he posted on a forum or or something. He wrote a letter, basically saying that the 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 helium release valve was co-developed between Doxa. And Rolex. There are a number of prototypes from the late 1960s, and also like uh, I think they, they they can be they can be described as uh, uh, serial production watches. Uh, the the Doxa Conquistador that actually has a helium uh, release valve on the side, and the story there uh, is 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 always a bit confusing because the Doxa guys actually claim that Doxa was first and and uh, and of course the rolex people say no rolex was first we have the patent which is true i mean there's no doxa patent and doxa is not mentioned in the patent at all mm -hmm. uh, so so there's no there's no evidence to substantiate this this claim also of the corporation and the interesting thing about about doxa is that the, all these conquistador uh, serial production watches i mean there's like i think there's like a handful 
or maybe maximum 10 right now known watches out there. And they're so the, the, the number is so small and uh, and they all they all are from 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 the from probably from 1969 or 1970. I, I don't know exactly. But the thing is, um, the Conquistador was basically the last model that uh, 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 Doxa installed a valve. After that, they never ever used the valve in their watches anymore. Mm. So until until basically the, the the company was bought by 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 someone else and then they they started you know I think there's there's doxas with the valve right modern mm -hmm. doxas with the valve yeah they do have them now on the modern um the modern ones yeah yes yeah. but the thing is that from from basically from 1970 to to let's say 1990 there's no valve in dollar in doxa watches nothing you know. Mm -hmm. And and that tells you something. Also, if you if you look at the timeline, so basically Rolex filed the the patent for the for the valve in November nineteen sixty seven, mm -hmm. and it took almost three years for the valve to be um, to be uh, for the for the patent to be granted. So the the patent was granted, I think, in June or in July nineteen seventy, mm -hmm. and that's when Rolex started. To put uh, the Rolex Seedweller on the market in late 1970, actually. So there you see they had they earlier they had like the patent pending versions, but those patent pending versions were were only given to 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 divers for testing purpose and stuff like this. Some were also sold later on the on the market. Some uh, you know they they had left in stock, but basically these patent pending watches were made for testing purposes to be given to 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 all kinds of divers. And and there you see, you know, 1970 is, is 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 the date. So basically, Rolex was granted the patent for the helium release valve, and from that moment on, Doxa doesn't produce any watches with a valve. That that I think tells you a lot. I mean, it's of course it's it's a logical deduction, but uh, I think it makes sense. Mm -hmm. So what I think is that that basically. Uh, Doxa created the valve indep uh, independently from uh, from Rolex or came up with the idea. Then they tried to to patent it, and then they realized there was already a patent. But in this period of time, there were so many patent applications done filed uh, at the Swiss uh, Patent uh, Office that uh, basically all patents at the time it took so long to be granted. Normally, it takes like you know between six months and a year to be to to receive your patent. But at the time, they were overwhelmed with patent applications, so it took almost three years. And I think what Doxa did is they produced a number of watches during this time where where the the the, the patent was in this uh, process of of being you know being evaluated, mm. and they took advantage of that time to basically produce their version of the helium release valve and and sell as many as possible and once rolex was granted the patent the rolex basically forced them to stop the production and to hmm. take the watches that were that were already made out of the market i think this is this is how everything came about and uh, from from a logical point of view it makes absolute sense to me so you know you see um helium escape 
valves around now in a lot of watches, right? <clears throat> but like something that's very interesting that I find as well too is <clears throat> you know the the helium escape or the gas escape valve as it were in the iteration in which it was present and prevalent in the sea dweller is really only in the uh sea dweller line and in the Tudor lines like the Pelagos that has it for example Omega has their version, but it's different, right? It's, it's, it's a different type of thing. It's a manual one. You have to unscrew it. And then really the only other places that immediately come to mind that you see them, I mean, Doxa does have them now, but it's sort of that older style and what you described where it's, uh, it doesn't have that extra ring around it. Like when I had mine, it, if from what I can recall, it was literally just kind of like the old style where it was just a very rudimentary kind of little, almost like a yeah. dot on the side of the case. Right. But what, the only other places you really see these helium escape valves are in like uh, Chinese manufacturer or manufactured uh, micro brands or um, some like smaller Swiss brands. So does Rolex still own that patent? Has that patent ownership expired? How does it work now with all these brands that are out there now using these helium escape valves or gas escape valves? Well, I think uh, patents uh, uh, expire after 25 years or so, mm -hmm. 20, to, 20 to 30 years. I don't know the exact number, but uh, no, that patent is long, long expired. I think they, they, they probably have new patents where they, where they you know, um, patented uh, very specific, mm -hmm. uh, you know, construction of the valve or something. But I think the, the, the helium valve patent, uh, in itself is is just expired so everybody can produce their own their own version now and uh yeah you mentioned you mentioned omega omega has this thing where you have to unscrew it so mm. you you need to be aware that you have to unscrew it otherwise you will damage the watch if you are a saturation diver and you you hang around in decompression chambers for a long time which is kind of odd and ironic because you if you're going to take the time to manually unscrew that valve you could just unscrew your crown that's right. I mean, it's it's the same. It's basically the same. You have to remember to do it either way, and it's unscrewing a crown one way or the exactly. other. Exactly. Yes. I mean, it's it's the same. It's the same thing. I mean, the, the, that crown is completely obsolete mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in certain ways. But you know, it sounds cool. It's just like this thing. Uh, it's a it's a tool watch with a helium release valve. Mm. Um, but the the interesting thing is uh, this: the modern Ploproft six hundred. Um, you know, a watch that was actually developed. To uh, to withstand any intrusion of helium, originally now has a helium valve as well, and that yeah. one is I think it's an automatic one. It's yeah. I think it's a on the on the uh, lower end. I think uh, uh, opposite from the from the button. The button, yeah, it has kind of the, a strange it has it has a unique a more unique construction. It looks different than the Rolex one, but it is an automatic one as you mentioned. As well, I too. think so, yeah. And yeah. now it's and it's, I think it's a twelve hundred meter watch now as well too. They've doubled it's the possible, depth yeah. on it, or it might even be two thousand or something crazy now. But it's it's got yeah. a very high death rating. But yeah, they did they did put it on. But you're right, like that's very kind of you know counterintuitive considering the intended design of the watch was that it never needed one to begin with. That's right. I mean, that's just. Uh... And and I think Omega uh, Omega has lost uh, their way mm -hmm. in that regard. Um, I also think you know the the the, the original the original Ploprof Pro uh, six hundred is just an amazing piece. I mean, you can say of the design everything you want, but it's just an amazing 
piece of engineering, you mm. know, very, very thought through, you know, every detail. It's it's over engineered. I mean, Comex didn't like it. It's over engineered, but it's 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 an amazing, amazing piece. And I think it's a piece that when you talk about the sea dweller and about saturation diver diving and everything, that always needs to be mentioned. I mean, for me, it's, it was always very important to to not leave out that that uh, that part of the story because I go I think it goes hand in hand with the development of the of the sea dweller. And and since you you mentioned the the death rating, I mean the original sea dweller from uh, you know the single red had a death rating of five hundred meters, mm-hmm. but then uh, basically I think it was in uh, in nineteen in early nineteen sixty nine Omega basically uh, announced for the Basel Watch Fair the Seamaster six hundred that was you know uh, water resistant to six hundred feet. And of course, what did Rolex uh, do in in uh, in consequence? They basically created the double red sea dweller that has a death rating of six hundred and ten meters, ten meters more than the than the Omega. I mean, there you see also how how these guys were always trying to you know always in competition with 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 each other. Oh, it's always nice. It's always funny when you can look back and see it them being a little petty and things like that too. You know, I mean, yeah. Yeah, adding that extra ten feet or the extra ten meters. I mean, yeah. it's not necessary, but it's it's hilarious to see that kind of stuff happen and the story be told there. You know. Yeah, but I think you know the, the interesting thing about this is that at, at the end, at the end of, um, you know, at the end, Rolex basically won this race. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they partnered with Comex. Comex was was the ultimate dive dive company at the time. They reached all these crazy, they they reached all these crazy death records, you know. And 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 you have you have Brower, the first the first uh, valve prototype who who actually made those depth records uh, possible with his uh, research into hydrogen uh, mixtures. I mean, it's you know at the end. It's once once you understand this whole thing, you see how everything connects to each other, and it makes just a, a great and fascinating story. Actually, you know, great stuff for a document for a really well well done documentary. I I hundred percent agree. Honestly, I think I couldn't imagine a better person to come and tell us that story. Honestly, Jose, you did a, a terrific job sharing Thank the story you. with us, giving us such a, a great oversight and really painting the picture of this interconnectedness and how everything really came together to kind of create this story of achievement for Rolex and and learn so much about such an awesome, awesome watch. I mean, I've always been a fan of the Sea Dweller. If I was going to get a Rolex, that'd be the one that I would get. And I just think it's such a fantastic piece. And I, I'm, I was so excited when we decided we were going to shoot this episode because it was such a, a tremendous opportunity to learn more. Where are some places uh, or where can people go if they want to read more about your articles, about uh, sea dwellers, about, you know, your your antiquorum uh, sea dweller story, for example, or just, you know, find your timeline and things like that. What's sort of your central landing hub where people can go and get information from you? You can find it on my website, periscope.com. You can find it through the sitemap or just scroll down. Or just uh, Google. I mean, you know, if, if you want to know more about the DOXA uh, helium re- release valve, uh, Google DOXA HRV, uh, you should find my my articles. And, uh, you know, I, I wrote this two-part story, the Sea Dweller Chronicles, 
The first part was the, the genesis of the decompressing watch, where I talk about the discovery of Brower's watch and how the Brower's watch is the very first um, uh, C, uh, valve prototype. And, you know, the, the whole story about C-Lab and about mm -hmm. the faulty material and why it was postponed and, and Dr. Bond and everything is described there in, in all detail. That's something, you know, I, I, I don't know from memory. That's something I researched and, you know, wrote down uh, in, in my article and it, it would also like you know it would also just uh, be too much to 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 talk in that detail in this podcast but I think people who are interested in knowing uh, more and digging deeper into this whole thing the Sea Dweller Chronicles genesis of the decompressing watch and then the second article or the second part was uh, uh, the Sea Dweller Chronicles uh, 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 it, it was uh, the dry run and uh, teaming up with Comex where, where the whole story uh, basically uh, is told about about the later stages of, uh, of, of the sea dweller development until 1972, 73. Mm -hmm. like that. And yeah, uh, you, yeah I mean, the, the, the Frankenstein watch is also an article that you will find uh, on the sea map, uh, site map. Um, yeah, my website, periscope.com. Perfect. And I'll make sure I'll make sure I drop a link to uh, your website in the description boxes below on YouTube and the podcast channels and all that stuff. I mean, I'm sure anyone who's listening to this episode already knows who you are and knows how to find you. But regardless, I'll make sure I include that for anybody who wants to go and check out any of Jose's articles. I highly, highly recommend you go and read something off his site. There's always something entertaining there. They're great articles. The amount of detail. Some of the photos are fantastic as well, too. Some, some terrific archival photos, your own photos. It helps put a context a lot of the um, a lot of what you're talking about in the written article when you can actually see the physical object as well, too. And I think it's 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 terrific. Such a great resource, an absolute asset to the watch community. Highly, highly recommend it. Go show some support for Jose. Go check out his website. Likewise for myself. If anyone has any questions, comments, feedback, feel free to shoot me an email at ghostwatchespodcast at gmail.com. Uh, additionally, if you want to follow along with the show, sort of at Central Hub, you would like to chat with me directly, feel free to shoot me a message over at Rico's Watches Podcast on Instagram. That is the central page to follow along with everything going on with the show, new posts, giveaways, new watch arrivals, all that kind of stuff. And it's just an awesome place to get in contact with myself. If you have anything that you want to say, you want to talk, you want to just shoot the breeze and talk watches for a little bit, I'm always happy to. If you're enjoying this uh, episode or my show in an audio medium and you would love to enjoy it in a visual medium, I highly recommend you head over to the Regals Watches Podcast YouTube channel. Just uh, you can check out this episode in a video along with uh, many, many, many other uh, Regals Watches Podcast episodes with other guests as well, too. It's fun to watch along. Sometimes we're able to see photos of things, see the watches held up on screen. It helps create a lot of context around some of the conversations that are being had too. Just make sure you like, subscribe, leave a comment, all that, hit the bell icon, all that YouTube stuff that helps with you know algorithms and things like that. Once again, Jose, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was terrific having you back on today. I, I really look forward to whatever the next topic is gonna be that we're gonna have you on to discuss. We'll have to figure that out. Uh, after the fact we'll figure out what we're going to have you on and talk about again soon too but I'm, I'm really looking forward to whenever that is going to be and i'm really looking forward to uh getting this episode out for people to enjoy because it's such an awesome in-depth detailed episode once again about such an important piece of the watch community thank you eric eric i have to thank thank you very much for giving me the, the opportunity to talk about 
the development of the Sea Dweller. I think it's a very interesting story, and uh, I think uh, or hope hope that people will uh, will will like this episode and. Uh, and uh, maybe you know if they are interested in digging deeper then uh, there's so much information out there yeah thank you very much 100 very very welcome and if anyone uh, has any feedback about the episode after you listen to it please feel free to shoot out to my uh, you know reach out to myself or jose let us know what you thought if you had any questions anything like that I'm, i know i'm always happy to hear back from the community about what their thoughts are on the episode thanks so much and you take care have a wonderful day jose bye-bye peace